Last time I was here, I was in Comtrans, so it just makes sense that that's where I'd end up again. Now we're all just one big happy tent. So I really like Comtrans, Johnny and Jenny. I love them. So wherever they're at on the planet Earth, I have no idea. But please pass my love along to them. And um, but all I know is uh, we've covered a lot of stuff. <laughs> With Compassion of Blaze and School of Worship, I feel like uh, where we've gone so far, what I wanted to do is maybe take like 10 minutes, and I just wanted to let them, and just like, what are some of the key things that they thought stood out to them, so that they can kind of just say it, um, and so then I can touch on it, and that way you kind of get a picture, because the first thing that I laid out for uh, the two schools was simply, I, I literally have no idea what I'm talking about. So as long as we're all on the same page that I don't know what I'm doing and you're okay with that, then I will just force you into reading your Bibles more because I'll convince you that I don't know anything and that if I say something that really impacts you, you probably need to read your Bible to make sure it's actually true. And at the end of the week, the goal is, is that if I have convinced you that you should read your Bible more because there's things in there that you haven't read yet, and there's things in there that no matter how many years you've been reading it, still can touch the depths and the riches of your heart because deep is still crying out to deep. And that this is not just a one moment affair, that a marriage is more than a wedding day, that it's a lifetime of service and humility, serving one another forever. And that if we're signing up for covenant and marriage with Jesus Christ for eternity, that this is something that's going to to grow and grow and grow and move and shape over the course of your lifetime. And then when you cross over into eternity, it's going to keep going. And so the goal for me is to get a bunch of people all over the planet to pursue the knowledge of God as the primary objective of their life. That's the goal. Well, that'll manifest in missions and worship leading and houses of prayer and church planting and a bunch of stuff. But at the end of the day, if we can get a, a whole group of people all over the planet to be convinced that the primary objective of their life is the pursuit of the knowledge of God, we win. Because then how it plays out is kind of irrelevant. Does that make sense? It actually doesn't see what we've done. I was telling the school, so I apologize. So I'm going to repeat a bunch of stuff today back and forth. And then we're going to jump farther ahead. And I'm going to cover a lot of stuff about the kingdom of God today. Because I feel like it is a real important issue for us to know what the kingdom of God actually is and how it functions. So we can stop saying that's the kingdom of God and that's the kingdom of God and somebody got healed. So that must be the kingdom of God. And then I planted a really big church. So that's the kingdom of God. I went on a missions trip. That's the kingdom of God. What actually is the kingdom of God? Not based on your opinion or somebody else's success in the natural, but what the Bible actually says about the kingdom of God. And how we actually operate in greater influence on the earth. But one of the main things that I was saying is I was saying that in reality, the will of God for your life is the same for every human being that's ever been born. The will of God for your life today, tomorrow, yesterday, and forever will be the same. The will of God has not changed in all of eternity for humanity. The will of God for all of humanity is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. And then everybody asks, yeah, but then what do I do? No, no, that is what you do. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. Well, but then what? No, there is no but then what? There is no but then what? If the, if honestly, if everybody in this room got that far, we would have already changed the planet. 
Jesus changed the planet with 12 people who were convinced that to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength was enough. They didn't have all the answers. Jesus in Luke 9 says, go heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers. And he didn't heal. He hadn't healed one sick person, raised any dead people or cleansed any lepers yet. He's saying, I want you to go do stuff. And then when he's leaving the planet, he says, greater works will you do. So all the stuff I did, that was just the beginning. Jesus actually said, in in that statement, Jesus is saying, I set a really low bar for you to jump over by living my life. Because there are greater works for you that you haven't even touched on yet. And it's actually greater than signs and wonders, miracles, healings. I mean, good, good God. Peter's walking down the street and his shadow is healing people. Jesus didn't do that. Paul's snot rag is healing people in other countries. Jesus didn't do that. But the goal has not changed. Do not make, do not make your assignment the will of God for your life. It is an assignment. It is, not your, it, it is a job description, not your identity. And that's majorly important for a bunch of Christians who you are young right now sitting in this room, but you won't be in five years. So now what are you going to do? Did you lose your identity? No, because your identity is caught up in being a child of God, not being a worker for God. If God was, if God wanted workers, he would have created you on the sixth day and then gave you a job description, not told you to rest. He told you to rest because he already did all the work without you. And when you're gone, it will keep going without you. The evangelization of the world is not dependent on you. It's dependent on God and you listening to God for what he's doing on the planet so that you can get on board with it because Jesus said he did nothing apart from what he saw the father doing. So program it out as much as you want, but then God will change it halfway through because he wants to make sure you're dependent on him and not your program. It's not that God changed. He just changes the plan midstream. How do we know that? It's going to be right in the middle of this board today. And I'll show it to you that it's true right in your Bible hundreds of times. God says only certain people are allowed to minister to me. And then David opens the tabernacle of David and everybody gets to minister. And did God say, well, it's time to kill David. He said, no, let's do it again. David broke the book of Leviticus, y'all. Like the entire book. He, the, the Levitical priesthood that God established, David said, we don't need it anymore. Not God, David. And God said, that's all I've been waiting for from the time of the garden. I've been waiting for a man who saw past the law and found my heart. And he's still looking for those people today that in the midst of our thousand structures, they supersede the structures that we've built throughout, throughout lots and lots of history. He's looking for men and women that will supersede the structures and find his heart. And if you're still confused, that's what Jesus actually died for. Jesus died not so that you can get into heaven and not so that you can go to church. (laughs) Don't worry, we're only like five minutes in. So we're just getting started. Huh? And it's okay, you don't ever have to invite me back, and I'm not saying that I'm right. I'm just saying there are a lot of questions that have gone unasked because somebody you liked gave you information that was only partially true, and you never thought to look it up for yourself. And that is on your head, not theirs. 
Well, no, I listened to the podcast and it changed my life. Great. Whoop-de-ding-dong. Is it biblical? No, but I felt it. I don't care about your emotional response to a message. Somebody get a hold of the gospel. I don't care about your emotional high. We need something that we can land on when the emotion is gone. When all the emotion is gone, are you going to give up on your marriage or are you going to keep pressing in? We would never, ever tell a teenager, if it feels good, do it. Yet all over charismatic Christianity, if Christianity, if it feels good, it must be God. That is a lie from the pits of hell. Ask any disciple from the, from, in the book of Acts. They all died for their faith. It didn't feel very good. Jesus Christ himself said, God, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. Right? It didn't feel good. If you're in this for a good feeling so that you can pat yourself on the back in six months when you get home, you are signed up for the wrong gospel. In fact, let me put it this way to you, people who are in lots and lots of worship services. If you ever leave a worship service and say, I didn't get anything out of it, you're still worshiping you. Right? Do we celebrate the woman called Mary who shows up? She shows up with a vial. Is it full or empty? It's full. She shows up with a vial of perfume and breaks it at his feet and pours it out and leaves with an empty vial and we celebrate her. We're showing up to worship services with empty vials saying, God, feel me, hoping to leave filled and then we'll say it's a good service. How many people are showing up to worship services completely full, dumping themselves out on God? And the fragrance fills the earth. We keep talking about a fragrance that will fill the earth, but nobody has anything to pour out. Get filled up, then go into worship. Don't drain yourself, then think you're going to go into worship so you can get filled back up to go do more. You're supposed to get filled back up when you're with Jesus alone. This is, a, this is a lot bigger than a nice message and a few pieces of scripture. This is about reformation in the church, the likes of which the planet has never seen. And if we can get a hold of where we've been, we can see where we're going and we can transform not only the, not only the planet, but God says judgment begins in the house of the Lord. It's not going to start with the world. I hope you understand that. It's actually going to start with you. Because when Jesus showed up, He loved on the world and judged the church. Or maybe you missed the part where he called out all the Pharisees. Who knew the most about the first coming of Jesus? The Pharisees and the Sadducees. Who were the ones that put him on the cross? The Pharisees and the Sadducees. Wow, that's weird. You can actually have correct information and lack truth. So go ahead and get all the information you want. But until you have an encounter with the living God, you'll never have covenant and you'll never be able to walk this thing out for a lifetime. You'll just keep doing this. And I don't know about you, but there came a point in my life where I was sick and tired of doing this. Oh, your life and circumstance may do this, but my heart is doing this. (laughs) Hi, I'm Jake. It's nice to meet you guys. What are a few things, so just a few people from uh, Compassion Ablaze and School of Worship, what are some things that over the last few days have stood out to you? We'll just take like four or five, and then I'm going to jump right back into this thing, so we won't get to all of it. But just a few of you, if you could share what stood out to you, and we could touch on it, that'd be awesome. Don't all of you go at once. It's really okay. Go ahead. Way up in the front. 
Here, you can um, so we were looking at like 1 Corinthians 13 and the Lord just hit me with like the potential this has to change the church yeah. and like if the church gets wrecked then like the world's getting wrecked and like yeah. it all is gonna like be like a domino effect but it all starts with patience like love is patient so we as people like have to be patient in like walking out and all the other things like being kind and like everyone knows 1 Corinthians 13 so like yeah but it all just comes from that place of like being patient in love and once we grasp a hold of that like everything else is going to follow and like the world is going to be changed if like we as people start grabbing hold of that so yeah we spent four hours just covering 1 Corinthians 13 (laughs) Because the context of all the kingdom is love. And if you don't have a radical encounter with what love actually looks like, you'll keep planting bad seed and reaping bad harvest. So if anybody in this room is going through cycles of relationships and relational hurt that look similar time after time after time, it's not because love is wrong. It's because your model for love has been tainted somewhere along the line. You have to get delivered from it and get new seed. Okay? Like you have to get new seeds. So that way when you go places, you're planting good seeds of love that reap a harvest that'll benefit the world around you. And what's hard is growing up, we may have gotten some really bad models. Some really, really jacked up models. And if we don't correct the model by going to 1 Corinthians 13 and getting, our, getting a crash course in what love actually looks like, 16 definitions of what love actually looks like, we'll just keep repeating history and wonder why we're not changing anything. Because love is the goal of all the kingdom. Beginning, middle, and end, love is the goal. Because God is, okay, God is love. And we, I think I touched on this. I don't remember if it was on the court or if it was in the class. So God is love. But why, you weren't created one day because God is, was bored in heaven. He's just like, well, I'm super bored today. I guess I'll just create man, mess with them for a few thousand years, and show back up and see how they did. You know, like, ah, oh, surprise. You know what I mean? It's like, no. God is love, but love is not complete until it has an expression. Does that make sense? If I tell you that I love you and do nothing, it means nothing. So if love demands an expression, then you are the expression of God's love in all of eternity. And the proof is you are the only thing in all of created order that can say I love you too. And when, and, and when I touch on it this way, you don't get saved when you decide to love God. If you got saved when you decided you would tell God you love him, you will actually fall into backsliding over the course of your entire life. But the moment you recognize you are loved regardless, when that actually seeps past your mind, smashes your heart, oh, you're saved. You'll get radically saved. Because you'll recognize that I am loved, not because I'm worthy, not because I earned it, not because I did anything, but because he is love. And the best place to teach out of him is what we talked about the other morning, the prodigal son that we fell into, which by the way, none of that's written. I think I told the other class, but not you guys. Like we, I was just making that up as it goes along. Because there's something about the love of God. 
that if we grab a hold of, it will smash every preconception of what love is supposed to look like. It'll destroy us. And then on the inside, every time we think we're going to do something wrong, we think about the love of God and we just manifest love instead of anger and frustration and bitterness and offense. But it's because we had an encounter with the living God and we encountered real love that transcends your understanding, transcends your bad models and delivers you. Oh, it's so much fun. A couple more things from Compassion to Blaze, School of Worship, anything else? Sorry, peripherals weren't working real well. Um, over here, guys. Um, anyway, uh, the pursuit um, for holiness and not the pursuit of how much world can I get away with. Um, and just that desire when God, when the Holy Spirit's in you, just to like, wow, I want to be more and more like Christ. Um, and instead of like, oh, I want to be able to fit in and, and tell them about Jesus, but be like them. Um, but setting a new standard and a new normal um, for for the world um, to see as um, being holy in Christ. Okay, I'm done. And we're going to actually cover some more of that today because I'm going to show you the differences between the kingdom of earth and the kingdom of God. Like we're just going to run through a list and go like, here's the things that the world values, but here's what the kingdom values. And you'll get to see how they're in complete oppositions. They're in opposition. They're in complete opposition to one another. Like you can't have one or the other. Does that make, or you, you can't have both is what I'm trying to say. Sorry. You can't have both. You can't be like... That's why Jesus says, be in the world, but not of the world. Well, in the world's easy because you were born onto it. You're here. Correct? You're here. But don't be of the world. You're supposed to be other than the world. You're supposed to be set apart. Jesus Christ didn't show up and become relevant to culture. (laughs) There is no such thing as a relevant gospel. If there was such thing as a relevant gospel, Jesus would have just came and high-fived everyone and said, you're all good, but just be a little bit better. Do you feel good about yourself? Well, then that's all that really matters, my friend. You feel good. I feel good. We both feel good. Praise God. Oh, maybe that's, is that what happened with the rich young ruler? The rich young ruler shows up and says, how do I get into heaven? Like, that's like, we are, we're hoping to go into the nations and people walk up to us and go, brother, I see the glory of God all over you. What must I do to be saved? I mean, this is what, this is what happens to Jesus in the rich young ruler. The dude shows up and says, what do I got to do, man? I'm in. I want it. I'm hungry. Give me the kingdom. And Jesus is like, well, did you kill anybody? Have you lied? Have you stolen? Have you done anything like that? And he's like, oh, dude, I've never done. This is the Jake International version. Oh, dude, I've never done anything like that before. Am I in? And Jesus says, no, sell all your possessions and come follow me. And then when the dude is walking away, Jesus does not chase after him like, no, man, I just meant if you wanted to give it away in your heart, I'd let you keep everything. I'm so sorry. Let's go have coffee 50 times before you even know I'm a Christian. Sorry. Hashtag not sorry. (laughs) No, Jesus lets him walk away and we never hear about him again. That's the love of God. 
Did he say it in an unloving way? Well, actually, you're a selfish, rich jerk, and you need to sell everything. You selfish, selfish man. No, he just gave him a standard. That's all he gave him. You don't have to receive it, but here's the standard. Jesus was like the worst model of a pastor ever by today's standards. We would never invite him to speak on something like this. The dude only had a church of 12. Right? Maybe a hundred and something if we like start counting towards the end. But even those people, do, do you understand that there's like, there's like 200 and some people who showed up into the, in, into the upper room. Correct? They saw the resurrected Lord walk through a wall. Nails. Nails, holes, holes. How many people were there when the Holy Spirit fell? 120? Where'd the rest of the people go that saw the resurrected Lord? And you think your signs and wonders and great messages are going to keep people around? These people saw the resurrected Christ and were like, man, I just don't know if it's real. Peace. You guys, this is more, this is so much bigger than us trying to have some kind of friendly gospel. It's about a standard that supersedes your culture. Where's the standard? In Jesus' name, I ask that God would raise up a standard, a remnant in the midst of this generation that would look nothing like the world so people actually get to see what a Christian looks like. Oh, we get to keep our personalities. That's what's awesome. You know? You might be a little more quiet or somebody might be a little bit more loud. Somebody's a little bit more funny. Somebody's a little bit more serious. Somebody likes the academic. Some people like the mysterious. Some people are an artist. Some people are this. You get to keep all of that, but it does not change the fact that the gospel is the gospel is the gospel. And the gospel isn't about you making sure everybody feels good. It's about a standard that supersedes anything everybody's ever seen before. So that way, at least they know. And if it's done without love, you're in judgment. But Jesus, he just like says, hey, if you really want to get in, which is what you're saying, then I want you to understand it's going to cost you everything. And that's what we talked about. We were talking about the simple fact that everybody's looking for a way to say, you get my sum and sum, not my all in all. And we keep asking questions about how far we're allowed to go instead of how holy can we be. Well, how far am I really allowed to go with my girlfriend or my boyfriend? Why are we even having this conversation? What that says to me is your heart is still so in love with the world and what you get out of it that you're actually more interested in what you get out of it. So you're going to blow it regardless, no matter what answer I give you. Same thing with drinking, same thing with swearing, same thing with gossip, same thing with sarcasm. How far are we allowed to go? No, he gets it all until there's nothing left to give. That's why Romans 12 says, get up on the altar. (laughs) You are the sacrifice. That's the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you could offer a sacrifice. In the New Testament, you are the sacrifice. That's the difference. Why? Because where's the temple now? 
Where's the tent now? In you. The place where all the sacrifices were offered is now in you, which means you are now the sacrifice. Therefore, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. There's, you guys, there's so much. The, the scriptures are so rich with this stuff, and we're still looking for an excuse to get by. I just want, we're just like the rich young ruler. What do I got to do just to get in? Just give me the, give me the basics of how do I get in? It doesn't work like that. I already said it. You can have correct information and no truth. That's what the Pharisees and the Sadducees had. The religious leaders of the day had information. They had tradition that Jesus called null and void by the time he got there. You've actually, you've actually destroyed the word that God gave you. Because you created traditions and opinions that have nothing to do with me to make yourself feel better and have nothing to do with what I'm actually doing on the planet. But you wanted to feel good. In 500 years of silence before Jesus came, you wanted to feel good about yourself. So you created religious systems that perpetuated your hearts and not God's. And we're still doing it today. We're doing it, you guys. We really are. We are the most divided body in all of human history. And we don't even question it. And as divorce runs rampant in the church, it's the same spirit that's dividing our families is dividing the body. Why? Because Jesus gave us one definition for how the whole world will know his disciples. How? If we love one another. He could have filled that blank in with any statement he wanted. The world will know you're my disciples when you work really hard and you do a lot of work and you go do this and you sing this song and you preach this message. He said, no, I'm going to give you the standard for how the whole world will look at you and know that you belong to me when you love one another. But the problem is we don't know what love looks like. So that's why we got to go back to first Corinthians 13. Does that make sense? Now, does it make sense why I said that love is the context for the whole kingdom? Because love is the context for the whole kingdom. Because if we don't know what love is, how are we supposed to love one another? You ready for a quick recap? I'm doing, I'm still going. First Corinthians 13. I'm going to hit them very, 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 very fast because I feel like I'm, we spent four hours doing it, but I'm just going to run through them. And the reason I'm going to run through them is because I feel like even as I'm talking about this to start filling in stuff on this timeline without this context is worthless. Love is the primary goal of all of you. This is like, you guys, I don't, I can just repeat it and bang on it as I like, I, I want this to be the theme message for my whole life. Love is the answer and not some humanistic, selfish version of love, but the love of God. We need a real example of what the love of God looks like, because not only is God love, but love covers how much sin, how much a multitude of. All. It covers all sin. So what's the answer to all sin? If, if that is a very, very, very large statement, do you understand that? Do you understand how huge that statement is? If love really does cover a multitude of sin, if love really is the answer to sin, then the answer to homosexuality, the answer to addiction, the answer to brokenness, the answer to abuse is love, not better theology or counseling. Although love may include those things, we're not going to lean on them as a crutch. We're going to go straight to a hug. For the rapist and the murderer. 
And some of you saw our friend Erica, she just left, uh, that was here. She just left for Thailand. She runs a ministry called Unlikely Heroes, and she uh, rescues uh, young girls out of sex trafficking all the time. And the hardest reality, they're going, she's going to Thailand right now, and then she's going to a couple other countries. And There's even forgiveness for the most broken. And love is the answer. What the world needs is a greater revelation of what love actually looks like. And they're supposed to be getting it from us. And the greatest model in all of eternity for love is family. The greatest model for all of all the, the greatest model for kingdom in all of eternity is family. And it's why from the very beginning, the enemy has wanted to destroy family. Let me give you the answer. There's like a spider coming down on you guys. So I figured I'd save your life. No problem. That's what I'm here for. (laughs) The family is the central unit of all the kingdom. How do I know that? It's not the apostolic ministry. It says in your Bible that the apostolic ministry is the foundation stones of heaven. But on top of those stones is a dad sitting next to a son who's a husband coming for a bride. That's a family. The greatest sign and wonder and miracle you will ever see in all of eternity is a marriage that lasts 50 years plus. We talked about it briefly the other night, uh, Tuesday night at uh, Josh and Melissa's house. But do you understand that women, young girls, you need to write this down, that Ephesians 5 and wives submit to your husbands. Let me tell you what real submission is. Submission is you submit your mission to another who will make sure that it's fulfilled in your lifetime. Submission is not the husband gets the say and gets to do. I have to, I have to do whatever he says because he's in charge. That's not submission. Submit means I, submission means I am submitting the mission and call of God that's on my life. I'm submitting that to another person who I know will take get better care of it than me. And it's actually proved true in what he says to husbands. And husbands, wash, uh, love your wives as Christ loved the church and wash her with the washing of the word. The washing of the word there is actually the prophetic word. So for all of you who don't believe in prophecy, that's a real bummer because you're supposed to be getting it from your husbands. You're supposed to be doing it. And women, you're supposed to be receiving it on a regular basis. Why? Because in motherhood, it's really easy to forget that you weren't a mom at one time. Now, motherhood is one, of the greatest, is one of the greatest callings you will ever get. Motherhood and fatherhood is one of the greatest callings you will ever, 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 ever receive. And we need to stand up for moms and their role in the homes a lot more often, but I do not have lots of time to go into women's lib and stuff, but I think that there is, there is some stuff that got lost in women's liberation that says we want to strengthen women, but then it degraded the home to where being a mom and staying at home is actually not a very valid calling. And I say that that is a lie from the pits of hell, that if, if you don't have a mother who, who actually is in the word and is in intercession on a regular basis, you don't get Timothy. And it says, in, it says in Timothy, and I'll just go there and read it for you, so that way you know that I'm not lying. <laughs> I think it's at the... Okay, and it says this, um, in Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, And I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt in who? Your grandmother, Lewis. 
and your mother Eunice. And now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, for this reason, everybody say for this reason. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. Who laid hands on him? His grandma and his mom. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Way to go, mom. I will also say to you that if you look through the book of first and second Kings, every time there was a good king who walked in the ways of their father, David, it mentions their mother. But young girls who are not married yet, remember that your role in, in, in being a wife is not to find some dude who has a great calling that you're going to lay down everything for their calling. Wrong. You're, you have a call of God. You have something on your heart. God wired you and, and predestined you for greatness. He already put something inside of you. And you're going to find a man who's going to take your mission and make sure you never forget it. He's going to call it out on you on a regular basis. And he's going to make sure that you fulfill it in your lifetime. And you will be partners in the work of the gospel. Now, husbands, let me just say this because we're going to get into love. I just figure might as well start with the marriage. <laughs> husbands, it says love, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Now, in the role of the church, we have made the woman's call the background role. And then the husband's call is the primary call. But that's a problem because that's not actually your Bible, what your Bible says. Because who's the greatest husband in all of eternity? Jesus, correct? Which is interesting because Jesus was never married, yet he's the greatest husband in all of eternity. That just is an interesting thought that you can read on later. But here's the point. Jesus is a husband coming for a bride. Here's the crazy part. Husbands, submit to your wife, uh, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Here's what's crazy. If he's the greatest model of a husband, let's look at his model. He has a high position, leaves his high position, serves his wife, loves his wife, dies for his bride so that she could come into the fullness of her greatness. Why? Because when the bride comes into the fullness of her greatness, he gets everything he ever wanted. We don't preach it because we like to promote men. Do you understand that there was a council in church history that actually dealt with the role of the woman in the church? And the reason they dealt with it is because they were getting promoted among men. And the men didn't like it, so they made a law that it was not correct. And over church history, we began to believe it. But it was not normal. Who funded Jesus' ministry? Women. Read your Bibles. You guys, like we're partners in this thing. Love actually looks like something. Love actually takes on life when the world says, I want a marriage like that. Do you know that, like, look, the answer to, the answer to abortion, the answer to STDs, AIDS, foster care system, orphanage systems all over the planet, the answer, the answer to all of those issues is three steps and we don't even have to vote on it. We need no vote. It's not Republican. It's not Democrat. We don't need a council. We don't need a body of church elders. We just need to read the Bible. And if we do three things, we could end abortion, end most of AIDS on the planet. Some is blood uh, some is bloods transmitted, but most of it's sexually transmitted. So we can end most of it on the planet. We can end STDs and we can empty the foster care system and empty every orphanage on the planet in one generation if we just do this. Three things. Don't have sex till you're married. When you get married, stay married to one person and then teach your kids to do the same thing. 
Correct? Look, that was way easier than we thought and the most difficult thing we have ever heard. Why? Because we don't believe we're more free by limiting ourselves. We actually believe we're more free when we can do whatever we want. And that is a lie from hell and it's a distortion of the grace of God and it cheapens the cross. This superficial grace message that's in the church right now, I want to see it killed. Because thinking that you can do whatever you want and calling it God cheapens the grace of God, cheapens the cross. And it shows the world that we don't actually believe what we're saying because we think we can do whatever we want and then say, forgive me, God, on the other side. That's not the way it works. Paul says it in the Bible. He says, grace is actually this good. But do not keep on sinning because grace is this good. Show the world that grace is good by stopping sin and appreciating grace. Where grace abounds, sins, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. But don't keep sinning. Don't keep sinning. How come we miss that part and think we can do whatever we want? Oh, brothers, I can go out and drink and do whatever I want. And I want to look just like the world. So that way I'll have an influence in the world. Wrong. That is a lie. And that is humanistic in nature. That's a gospel of you getting to do whatever you think you want, whatever you think you can do. And if I think about it, I'm allowed to do it. And I'll just tell everybody it's grace and I'm just trying to fit in so that I can share the gospel. No, stand out and share the gospel and see what happens. Show the world that you're actually above their standard so that they actually look to you for help. Because if we were a model for marriage on the planet, homosexuality would not be an issue today. Not that it wouldn't still exist. Don't mishear me. But they would have no platform because our marriages in the church are so clean, so pure, and so abundant. But because we've divorced, abused, and defamed. When was the last time you were in a church and the, and the pastor got up and said, God hates divorce? That's an actual Bible verse. When was the last time you heard a pastor get up and say, God hates divorce? We don't say it because we don't want anybody to be upset and we don't want anybody to leave because we got bills to pay and we don't want to lose, we don't want to lose an offering. But if we were, if we are man enough to say it or woman enough to say it, we get up and say, God hates divorce. And anybody who's been through a divorce agrees. Oh, I'm sorry. Or did you enjoy it when you went through a divorce or did you enjoy it when your parents went through a divorce? Did you just enjoy it so much? You're like, I don't agree with God. It's actually amazing. No, God hates divorce because he hates broken covenant and models of broken covenant all over the planet actually demeans the very covenant that God instituted on the cross. That's why he hates divorce because he says, I stick it out with you every single day when you reject me. And when you get a little bit of heartache in your marriage, you abandon it and show the world that covenant isn't real. Now, with that said, there are some serious abuse issues in marriages. There are serious stuff going on in some marriages that one or both party, one, one of the parties did not sign up for. And I'm not telling you to stay in that. I'm not telling you to continue to be abused. I told someone just the other day, I said, get out and leave. If you're being abused or your kids are being taken advantage of, you get out and leave. But the hardest message that you guys, I don't, I can't say this, stress this enough without sensitivity. Uh, But divorce isn't the answer. 
because everybody can change. But what, if it, but what if it takes 40 years and I'm alone? That's the first lie. You are never alone. What, do you want me to live my life alone? No. You're never alone. That's the point. Well, yeah, but I'm, I'm alone. No, you're not. You have a husband and a father who radically loves you. And I promise you that all the love you'll ever need, you will find in them. And by the way, if you are married or plan on getting married, if you don't find that love in God alone, you will try to suck it out of your wife or your husband and you will destroy your marriage. I love my wife radically because I found an abundance of love in my God. So therefore, I have an abundance of love to give to her. That's where my love comes from. Does that make, I can't, I don't have time to totally break that apart. There's a million questions in there. All I'm saying is don't continue to be abused. Get out, whether that's church, family, friends. I mean, I've told the other class, I've, I've stood in the doorway between a husband and a family. I don't like, I will never, I don't want to do that. <laughs> but he was physically abusive and I thought I was going to get totally beat up. But at some point we have to stand up for families. And you know that, that that kid who was at that time 12 years old, he still comes to me seeking advice from me as a dad because I stood up for him in a way his dad never did. Ten years later. You guys, we have to figure this thing out. And we have to start, we have to figure out what we're looking for in marriage or else we'll get married to the first person who makes us feel loved. And if we don't have a standard for love, we'll never understand what we're actually looking for. First, love is patient, which means simply this, that the rest, let me say this, the rest of the the 16 are lived out of the first. And if you do not understand patience, you will not get the rest because love does not happen in a vacuum. It will take the rest of your life to understand love. Love will not happen by accident. And the greatest lie is that you will fall in love. You do not fall in love. You don't trip over love and fall into it. And you don't fall into holiness either. They take work and they take lots and lots and lots of time. And this whole thing about falling in love is, has to be destroyed. Jesus Christ didn't fall into love. He was crucified before the foundation of the world, which simply means that he chose over eternity, that he would sacrifice his life for you, a conscious choice over eternity to give his life. I also want to say this. Jesus Christ could have redeemed humanity by taking a holy nap. Correct? He could have like fallen asleep for three days, woke up and went, the world is redeemed. But no, he chose suffering and sacrifice because suffering and sacrifice shows real love more than anything else in all of all of humanity. And God chose it. It didn't happen. Isn't that what Jesus said? Pilate comes to him and says, don't you know I have the authority to kill you and hand you over? And he goes, you have no authority but was given to you by God. What is he saying? You're not going to kill me. I'm going to give up my life because that's what I chose over all of eternity. I chose to give up my life so that, so that others would know that they're loved. And sometimes you're going to have to lay your life down over and over and over and over, over 20, 30, 40 years before it finally breaks. But most of us don't have patience and we're not set up for the long term. We just want the nice emotional high. And when do we have sex again? We wouldn't say it that way because we're very good Christians, but love is kind. And I love what William Barclay said. So much of Christianity is good, but unkind. 
look, here's how, let me solve, let me solve this issue. Like being unkind. It just means be nice. Jesus said it this way, treat others as you would want to be treated. It's proactive, which means you have the responsibility to love others who have not loved you. Even if they don't say, I love you in return, you have to be nice to them because that's what you'd want to do. And I made the other class. I said, write down something, (laughs) write something, write, write down something you wish somebody, somebody would do for you. What do you want somebody to do for you? Like, what would be awesome if somebody did this for you? Write it down and then go do that for someone else because you're supposed to do to others what you want done to you. I just wish somebody would hand me $100. Perfect. Go hand $100 to someone. Isn't that what the Bible says? Do unto others what you would want done. And you're sitting in intercession. God, I need $100. And he's like, well, then go give up $100. That's stupid. I need the $100. And he goes, yeah, you get more by giving more. You don't get more by hoarding more. Love does not envy. Envy is different than jealousy. Jealousy says, I don't like what you have. Envy says, I'm going to take what you have because if, if I can't have it, nobody should. Envy actually finds its roots in anger as well. That's why um, just a couple more down, it says love is not easily angered. But uh, envy has its roots in saying, I just want to destroy the whole thing because I don't want anybody to be happy because I'm not happy. Ever met anybody like that? They are not fun to be around. Love does not boast. Learning to listen. Okay, this is, the most, this is one of the most important points about listening. And it's two words. Write it down. It's very, very important. Shut up. Just shut up. Love does not have to, like, say anything. Just shut your mouth. Just listen. Stop worrying about the, what you're going to say next. Just shut your mouth. Listen. And then don't even respond. I told the other class, I just wish that sometimes people, it's like this testimony war, especially in cultures like this, where somebody tells a testimony and then somebody else in the group is waiting for them to get done because they have a better testimony. Like they're not even listening to their testimony. They, they, they were on the streets. Two people got healed. Oh yeah, I was on the street last week and saw 10 people healed. Here's what, here's what not boasting means. It means that that person says, I saw two people healed on the streets today. You saw 10 the day before and you say nothing and just applaud what God's doing in them. Love is not proud. I want to live to make others great. Love, see, not being proud means this. I can tell you how great you are without feeling like I'm not that great. Most people don't tell other people how great they are because they're afraid it's actually telling everyone else how, how not great they are. You're allowed to build up other people who are like you because love is humble and not proud and it's looking to build up others. Love is not rude, which just means that it's gentle and sensitive and it requires humility. It requires humility to lay down and say, I'm not going to be rude to you. And the way that we talked about this is sarcasm. Sarcasm is a manifestation of insecurity in your life. If you are a sarcastic person or you've been known as a sarcastic person, it's actually your insecurity that's manifesting in your life because you are putting others down in a passive aggressive way. That makes others feel littler than you so that you can feel good about yourself. Sarcasm has to be killed in the body of Christ. People should feel safe with us and not like we're going to make fun of them. Love is not self-seeking. True love can never be, true love can be beaten, scorned, mocked, ridiculed, abandoned, rejected, and still be unmoved because it is not dependent on being understood or even received. Love doesn't have to hear I love you in return. If you're just saying I love you so that you can hear something in return or get something out of it, it's not love. Jesus says, I love you. You say, I hate you. And he says, it's okay. I love you still. 
Love is not self-seeking. Love doesn't have to wait for an answer back. It just says, I love, unhindered by the circumstance. Love is not irritable, which means some say it's not easily angered. Love is not per- perfect, and every, and every suggestion or comment given... I, I am not perfect, and every suggestion and comment that's given to me is not a, a critique of my character. <laughs> like, I'm not going to get frustrated when other people say that I'm doing something wrong. Fear, uh, failure is not fatal, which means when I fail, it doesn't, it's, not a, it's not a critique on my character. It's actually just a little failure. And you have to learn to get up. I told the other class that um, when you, like if I was walking through a field and I stepped on a nail, I don't yell, I'm a nail. Does that make sense? I don't walk through a field and step on a nail and go, oh, I'm a nail. No, I pull the nail out and go, ow, that hurt. Keep moving forward. But see, what happens is we end up walking through life. We have a failure. We go through a failure and go, oh, I'm a failure. I'm never doing that ever again. That's so dramatic, people. It was just a bump in the road. Brush yourself off and move forward. When we lose our tempers, we lose everything. Those who can control their tempers can overcome anything. Love keeps no record of wrongs. (laughs) This one was fun to talk about. This is actually an accounting term in scripture. It's an accounting term because in Jewish history, they kept record of everything. You guys, they kept record of names and jobs and dates and families and histories and the whole deal. That's why when the temple burned and the tribes were scattered, it was a really big deal. But what it says here is that God has the ability to keep a record of everything you've ever done. And he actually divinely edits his memory and forgets your sin. Which means this, you're going to God and you're saying, God, I still feel really bad about that thing I did last week. And he goes, I don't know what you're talking about. And you're like, no, God, that thing, it was so horrible. I sinned and I fell. I'm so sorry. And he's like, oh man, this is so awkward. I have, I I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) No, God, you know, the thing with the stuff that I did and it hurt and it was, it was a horrible God. And he's like, why are you reminding me of something I don't even remember? And I already forgave you for. We're spending so much of our prayer time asking God to forgive us something for something he already forgot. And we're, and see what the reason is, is we think that God says, oh, don't worry, I forgot. And then he keeps it in a file back here like he's going to pull it out one day. No, he actually forgets it, the whole thing. When you cross over, actually, somebody brought it up the other day, and this is what I was thinking. They said in the land, that it says that in the book of Revelation, you'll walk up and then there'll be judgment for all of your sin, for all those people. That's for all the people. When I was looking it up, it actually is for all the people who aren't redeemed by the blood of the lamb. Because those who are redeemed by the blood of the lamb, their sin is washed, and he throws it as far as east is from west. Everybody else, theirs remains. Because they didn't ask for forgiveness, didn't get healed by Jesus' blood, that list still remains. But your list is gone. It's just literally torn out of the book, burned in the fire, gone. Your list is gone. And we're busy going to God and saying, but God, but God, but God. No, you had a mistake. Move forward. Show the world how good grace is. And again, like we said backwards, that doesn't mean, see, the thing about David is he sinned in one area and then he never fell in that sin again. Why? Because he understood how good grace was. So he knew he got set free, so he didn't go there again. It's not like we have this lineage of David cheating. Uh, Like we don't have like 15 Bathsheba moments with David. We have one. He cried out to God for forgiveness. He cried out for God, not for there to be judgment. All this. And then his son dies. The baby dies. And then Nathan walks into the room and he's feast and David is feasting. Correct. 
And Nathan's like, what in the heck are you doing? Your son just died. You should be mourning. And he said, no, I cried out to God and God said, no. So it's over. I'm sorry, what? God has my child. And he says, I will see him in paradise. I will see him. It's over. Love does not delight in evil. And that's a huge one because we are so busy reminding everyone else of their sin so that we feel better about ours. But love does not delight in evil, which is another thing that we have to kill in the church. Gossip. Gossip has to be destroyed in the body of Christ for this reason. If it's not destroyed in the body of Christ, we will perpetuate evil by reminding everyone of how broken they are. We have to end the cycle by never bringing it up. And if you want to know how to quit it with the people around you, don't say anything. Don't say anything to anyone about anybody else's stuff. And when somebody does around you, get up and leave. Or tell them to stop. Well, but I don't want to hurt their feelings. I don't care about their feelings at that point. Somebody needs to learn something. You need to learn that that's not okay. No, we're not, I'm not going to listen. I'm sorry, I can't listen to that story because I really feel like, I just feel really bad for them. The problem is most of us love hearing the story because we hear it as if they're that broken, then I'm that great. And we need to start, stop finding our justification for our junk through other people's failures. Gossip has to be killed. Love rejoices with the truth, which, I mean... We keep trying to tell people, we're, we're like, well, I'm just sharing the truth in love, brother. No, you're not sharing the truth in love because the person didn't walk away feeling loved. They felt broken and beaten up by you. So that wasn't truth. That was just information, and you're just a jerk. Love rejoices with the truth, but it's always working in love. If it's not working for you, this is what I told them. Here's the standard. If you're going to go share something hard with someone, if you're not crying over it, then it's not your turn to share. If it hasn't broken your heart, then it shouldn't break through your lips. So if you have the information and you need to share it with someone, make sure your heart's broken or ask God to give somebody else the information. Love bears all things, which means this, till death do us part. Love is until death do us part. We're going to keep going forward. Love always trusts. Trust, I mean, I don't have time to go into all of it, but love doesn't just say we blindly just, okay, well, I just trust you even though whatever, but it does say this. Love does say this. I'm not going to judge this new relationship that's been brought to me by the 30 other bad relationships I have behind me. So you're not, I'm not going to hold you personally responsible for all the times I've been hurt. I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt and we're going to work. We're going to, we're going to be brand new friends instead of carrying all this into this relationship. Love always hopes. Jesus believes that there is no one beyond hope. The worst and most broken of us, there is hope. There is no hopeless cases. Love always endures, which essentially it's not a passive word. It's not like, well, I just endure. I just sit there, brother, and I just sit in the prayer room, and I'm just going to endure it out. No, you're doing nothing. You're just sitting in a room, and you're not even actively pursuing anything. You're just actively not pursuing anything, hoping it works out. And that word there, always endures, means that there is a pushing forward into the agenda that God has for your life. And you're pushing forward into it, not sitting idly by. And then the last one, love never fails. Amen? Okay. That was a whole lot of stuff. Take a deep breath. Okay. (laughs) Do you see how that's a a different love than you probably have ever experienced in your entire life? But that's what love looks like. And you're like, that's too high of a standard. No, that standard's so high, it requires God. 
There is no love without God. Do you understand that? There is no love without God. Like the world tells you that they have love. There is no, they don't. What they have, (laughs) what the world has is not love, even though they use the word a lot. That's not love because you cannot have love without God. Well, no, they're doing a ton of nice things. They're doing stuff all around the world. We work with, with other organizations who aren't Christian and they're doing really good stuff. It does not mean it's done in love. It's actually done for themselves because they're hoping to make it better for themselves. They're doing nice things to show the world how nice they are. That is not God and it's not love because love always points to the author of love or else it's pointing to me. Does that make sense? Well, we know all these orgs that are doing awesome stuff in the, in the name of love, and they're doing all these great things. I, great, you dug a well in Africa, and you got a bunch of people who now have water. That's awesome. They're still going to go to hell if they don't know Jesus. Great, you prolonged it. Wonderful for you. Now, they, now we need to make sure that they have the gospel. Does that make sense? It's got to point to something or else it points back to you. If you're digging a well and don't share the gospel, you're digging a well and they're going to think you're awesome, not God. You're going to go build houses in another country? Awesome. Go build the houses and tell them that Jesus is doing it or else they're going to know your name and talk about you when you're gone, not Jesus. That's why this standard is so important. You ready for what's next? And then we'll take a break. Don't worry. I just got a lot more. We're just going to pound through it. Is everybody okay? Do you need just a couple minutes to to breathe for a second? Are we okay? Okay. Point number one, I'm going to catch everybody up and then I'm going to give a couple new points. This is the garden. This step one here. Uh, What this is, is I'm going to give you a biblical timeline. I'm going to give you a history of the church and of the Bible so that we can see the call, what the call and what our call is and what our response is based on the word and based on what God's doing. Not on our opinion of how it should be done and what we think he needs. <laughs> Does that make a difference? You hear the difference? Because over here, this entire thing begins in a garden with a family. And family, what you'll find is that the family is the goal. From beginning all the way to the end, what began in a garden will end in a garden with the return of the king. Now, I don't care what your end times theology is, I really don't care. Here's mine, so that way you have it on file. It's called the revelation of Jesus Christ, not the revelation of the end times. Which means this, that this began with a man named Jesus. It was split in the middle by a man named Jesus. And it will end with a man named Jesus. Which means this, if you know the man Jesus, you won't miss him when he shows up. So my eschatology is this, focus your eyes on the man Jesus and not how it's going to go down. Because if your eyes are focused on the man Jesus Christ, no matter how he shows up, you'll be ready for him. Because the people who had the most information, I've said it several times now, the ones who had the most information about his first coming missed him. 
Your correct information could actually lead to bad theology. Why? Because when he shows up differently than you planned, you'll defend your information instead of the man. Does that make sense? That is not me downplaying. I don't care if you believe it. Glorious eschatology. I help eschatology. You believe you're going to get raptured. I don't care. I genuinely do not. And some that's just offensive to a lot of people. So I apologize, but I don't apologize because in my eyes, if we can just start with square one, right, then we might end up somewhere really healthy, which is just focus on Jesus. <laughs> just get your eyes on the man, Jesus, and let's work it out from there. Well, no, you don't understand. There's all these signs. No, I understand the signs and I understand the Bible. I could probably talk about it. I've been at IHOP. I've been at Bethel. I've been everywhere in between. We could talk about all of it. And I'm totally grateful to do it. I love being in all the circles because it's loads of fun for me. Because I just get to be poking at people's stuff, you know? Well, what about this, you know? It's like, it's fun for me because I just love dialoguing about it. But I'm going to keep my eyes on Jesus, not the correct information. Jesus is the point, okay? And when he starts, he says, I want a man and a woman in the garden. Now, let me say this. It also starts with something I didn't mention. And it starts with three lies. Three lies in the garden is where this whole thing starts, okay? And the three lies that are in this garden, number one is, did God really say? The first lie the enemy gives to Eve is, did God really say you're not allowed to eat from any of these trees? See, here's the hard part. We are in a biblically illiterate generation, and we don't know what God really said. All we know is what our pastor said. Um, And by the way, they're not the same thing. So when the devil comes, when the devil shows up to Eve and says, hey, Eve, did God really say? She goes, she has a response because she knows what God said. Does that make sense? Most of us don't know what God said. So when the devil says, why aren't you sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend? Everybody else is. You go, I don't know. And the seed of the enemy is already caught up in your mind and you're going to spin it around until a response or an action comes forth that was birthed by a seed from the enemy and not a seed from the spirit. And it's because we don't know what the Bible says. I don't care what your pastor said or your leader said. If it doesn't spur you to go find it out for yourself, then it's not really relevant information. Because there's a lot of stuff that's being said by a lot of famous people that nobody's questioning. And it's terrible theology. Terrible theology. But nobody questions it because we really like the person who said it. I don't care if you like the person who said it. I don't care who's leading you. At the end of the day, Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church, not a man, not a person, Jesus Christ. So any information you are getting, if you're not taking it back to the word, seeking it for yourself, you are going to be misled and you will be deceived because you won't know if God really said it or not. Well, so, but they quoted the verse. Well, good. I'm glad they quoted the verse. Go back and read it for yourself and get context to the verse. And when you have questions, ask questions. Did God really say? And she goes, oh, no, God said we could eat from all the trees. We're just not allowed to eat from this one. And to show you, not only, it's, not only is it in Genesis, look at how Jesus defends himself against the devil in, in, uh, in the Gospels, too. It happens in Genesis, and it has, happens in the Gospels. When the devil shows up, and the temptation happens in the desert, and the devil comes to him and tempts him, what does Jesus use to respond to the devil? Scripture. 
He uses the word. Did God really say, if you're really God, do this. If you're really God, do this. And he goes, the word says, da, 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 da. And it backs down the enemy. Do you know that nothing defeats the work of the enemy in your life like the word of God? When the enemy shows up and he goes, hey, I think you should sin. You go, oh, well, I know what the Bible says. Punch you in the face. That's why it's called a sword. But we don't use it ever. So we have this sword and we're like, well, I, I could pull it out, but I just, I think I'd hurt myself more than anybody else. Because nobody's convincing you, go read the Bible for yourself. Because we really like being in front thinking we have all the information. And anybody who comes up to one of these platforms anywhere for the rest of your life that says they actually know, then don't listen to a word they say because nobody actually knows. This thing is a mystery and we have information. But that thing you're sure of today could change in 10 years because it's unfolding in front of you. The Jews used to say that the word of God is like a thousand-sided jewel. And every time you put it into the light, you see something that you've never seen before. You could read John 3.16 for the rest of your life and find something new every single day. What about this? The angels are around the throne and what are they singing? Holy, 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 correct? Holy means different and other, not perfect. So if holy means different, then what they're really saying is, Oh my God, I never saw that before. Isn't that amazing? And then the other one goes, I know. Did you see this? I've never seen this before. It's amazing. And the other one goes, oh my gosh, I've never seen this before. That is really incredible. And the other one goes, I know. Look at this one. It's actually more incredible than the last thing I saw. And the other one goes, oh my gosh, me too. This is crazy. Look over here. And they've been doing it for a billion years and never run out of things to say that they found out that was new about God. They've been staring at him for eternity and they're still on the same song because they're saying he's so different, so unique. This is not like anything you've ever looked at before. And I'm still getting to know new things about him a billion years from now. But we're like, oh, we're bored with that verse. I heard that in Sunday school. No, you haven't heard anything yet. Did God really say? And the second... This is where she trips up. Did God really say? And he says, the second one is, God is holding out on you. His phrase looks like this. He actually knows if you eat from the tree, you'll be just like him. And what he's saying is, Eve, what you don't understand is God is holding out on you. And see, what happens is if we make it through the first one, the next lie of the enemy is, yeah, that might be true, but God actually has more and he's not giving it to you. Maybe that doesn't sound like something you do until you don't get the healing or the finances or the life that you wanted. And then you find in your Bible that you're supposed to have it, but your life doesn't equate to what you see in scripture. And so you go, Maybe he really is holding out on me. Now, is that true? No. Because what God really was saying is, there are things that I know that you don't know that you shouldn't know. Because if you did know, you'd mess the whole thing up. And I have this for you as well. The third, well, so she goes, well, I don't want to be held out on. So what does she do? The third thing. It looked, looked, <laughs> good. 
See, what happens is the first one, she's got her eyes focused on Jesus. She's got her eyes focused on God. The enemy says, look, God is holding out on you. So what does she do? Take her eyes off God and looks at the fruit. And she decides that fruit actually looks good. We are an underloved and oversexed generation. And what ends up happening is in, in terms of sexuality is just the easiest way to point it out. We end up going, no, I know that the word of God says that I'm, I'm not supposed to sleep with my boyfriend or girlfriend. But then the enemy says, no, everybody's doing it. You're just being held out on and God, you're, you're being held out on. You're, everybody else is doing it and you're, you're holding out for nothing. It feels good. It looks good. It's amazing. And you take your eyes off of what the gospel says and you look around and go, that does look good. And so she takes a bite. You guys, the answer to these is one word. Trust. And at the end of the day, if we know the word and our trust is in God and not in our flesh, we win every time. Do you trust him? And the truth is most of the church does not trust him to fulfill what he said. That's why we're programming things. That's why we're trying to build our own agendas because we don't trust God enough to say he's going to do it his way. His way, it just looks a little shady, you know? Like, I'm not quite sure that works out, God. Let me help you. (laughs) Oh, I know it says that we're supposed to just pray, but I really feel like I should do something. And he's like, no, just pray. It's really great. No, nah, I'm just going to do something. Now, not that our prayers don't demand a response. Don't hear me. Don't miss hear what I'm saying. But there are loads of time, most of the time, where God's just telling us to slow down so he can do a work in your life. And we're so busy doing stuff, we miss out on him getting to do something in our lives. You want my, the, the theology behind that is Mary and Martha. There is no Martha ministry in the church. If There is no Martha season in the church. If you're in a Martha season, get out because you're about to be rebuked by Jesus. Martha shows up twice and gets rebuked both times. Martha did one thing right. She invited Jesus to the house. Who was the one that invited her? Invited Jesus? Martha. And he says, Martha says, Jesus, come to our house. He shows up. Now, loads of us get the first part right. We invite Jesus to the house, but then while he's there, we forget that he's there and go to work for him. So he shows up and we don't spend any time with him because we're so busy working for him. God, come, God, come, God, come. And he shows up and we're like, well, we're already done with the worship set. We're moving on to something next. And he's like, oh, all right, well, then that's good. So he shows up into the house. Martha's in the kitchen. Mary's at his feet, not talking. Hear this, church. Not talking, listening to every word that comes from his mouth. Martha is in the kitchen working. She's at his feet. Mary's at his feet, listening to every word that comes from his mouth. Martha comes out of the kitchen and says, Jesus, tell that girl to get off her butt and help me. And Jesus makes two statements that you have to hear. First, he says, she has found the one good thing. That's the translation. She has found the one good thing. One, one, not many good things. Not, oh, sorry, Martha, you're in a Martha season. Mary's in a Mary season. Peter's in a Peter season. Don't ever fall into a Judas season and we'll all be okay. He says, no, 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 you don't understand. She's found the one good thing. Now, we may not like it right there, but we love it when David says it. One thing I ask, one thing I seek, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and to gaze upon his beauty. That's the most irresponsible, lazy thing I've ever heard in my whole life. 
Put that on your job description next time you want to get a job for like an interview. What, what, what is your future aspirations? One thing I ask, one thing I seek. To dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze upon his beauty. But that's a reality for you. But you're like, well, how does that work out to do anything good? I'll show you in a minute. Because the second thing that Jesus says, it will not be taken from her. First thing he says, she's found the one thing. Second thing, it will not be taken for, from her. Anybody want God to defend you? Anybody? You want God to defend you? Then get on your face, get at his feet. He said, when you're that low, I can defend you. When you're out working, I can't really defend you because you're figuring it out on your own. But when you're on your face and you're with me, I can defend you. A better example might be, have you ever jumped on one of those giant trampolines, you know? Is it really good to jump in the center or right next to the springs? <laughs> because if you're jumping next to the springs, next thing you know, you're either bouncing off the side, cracking your head, or you're going, anybody ever gone through this? this? That's just not pleasant for anybody involved. You just, it's like, it's like a nightmare that you relive and wake up sweating. <sighs> the springs, you know, and like, but when you're jumping in the center, you're safe. And God, what he's saying is, if you just jump in the center, you're safe. And we're like, nah, I like the springs better. And he's like, no, 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 I can't defend you when you're out there because you're choosing to do it your way. And when you're choosing to do it your way, you're not under my cover. I, if you don't like that version, in the, in the, in the story of the prodigal son, does the, prodigal, the, the, does the father chase the son into the city to make sure he's okay? Where is he? He's at the house. And he's called a really good dad. And he said, if you want to go to the city, you're allowed to go, but you're not in my covering. But when you come home, I'll be waiting for you and watching for you. Does that make sense? But you're like, okay, so how does this one thing turn out to be anything great? Let me show you. Mary and Martha show up again at the death of Lazarus, correct? Lazarus dies. They send a message to Jesus. Jesus shows up three days later like any good friend. He shows up. And as he's walking up, Martha, again, is the first person to greet him. Martha walks up to him and says, Lord, Lord, if you were here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus responds with the best news you ever want to hear if your friend has died or your brother has died. Jesus says to her, surely he will rise again. I mean, that's like time for a worship service. That's like hallelujahs. That's like falling your face crying. We're so excited. No, no, no. Mary responds with good theology. That's mostly how we respond to the voice of God. Yes, God, I know that they'll rise again. And this is what she says. I know that in the end, he will rise again. Oh, you're such a good theologian. But you're missing the presence of God because you're so smart. God just said your, son, your brother will rise again from the grave. And you're busy giving Jesus a topical study. And Jesus is so kind, he gives her a second chance. No, 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 no. I am the resurrection and the life. <laughs> like, come on, get this. She still doesn't get it. And the next line we get is Martha, Mary. So <laughs> Martha doesn't get it. So Jesus goes, go get your sister. <laughs> and we know that's what he said, because the next verse, Martha's running up to Mary and saying, the Lord is looking for you. So Mary runs up and prays the exact same prayer, says the exact same phrase that Martha said. Why? Because God wanted to see, God wanted us to see two different reactions from God from two different hearts. So Mary runs up to Jesus and says, Lord, Lord, if we, if you were here, my brother would not have died. And what is Jesus's response this time? The shortest passage in all of the New Testament. 
Jesus wept. I have a question for you. Why didn't he weep when Martha said this exact same thing? Because where Martha had information, Mary had intimacy. And the very next line is, Jesus says, take me to the tomb. And it birthed the miracle that literally led, if you know anything about like the timeline of Jesus' life, that resurrection of Lazarus is what shifted all the governments to hate him. And if you have correct information but no intimacy, you'll never have any impact. Does that make sense? So you're like, how does this work out? Oh, it works out great. Jesus will show up. You'll, you'll pray and he will respond. But that's intimacy developed over time. Does that make sense? Okay. Don't worry. We got like 15 minutes. We'll get through the recap and then I'll give you two hours of craziness. Okay. So look, here we go. So let me just give you a few fill in the blanks here just to catch up. Okay. Because right here, we're working our way to Jesus. Okay. This is the center of the whole thing is this man, Jesus. But before we get there, we have another spot. We have, I mean, we have, I mean, we have Noah, we have Abraham. And after Abraham, we have Isaac and Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and we have Joseph right here. But here we have family, 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 family. God has desired to work through families since the very beginning. In fact, if you go to Matthew and read the genealogy, it's family, 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 family. I understand this theology about spiritual sons and daughters, but I think that God wants to redeem natural bloodlines again. And you're busy trying to figure out how to get away from your family, and God is saying, I want to redeem your bloodline. Well, no, I've been hurt by it. It's been oppressive. It's been rejecting. It's been painful. No, that doesn't mean that there isn't gold back there somewhere and you have to find it. And I think God wants to redeem bloodlines so that he can restore generational blessings. Because there is a blessing somewhere in your family line that you have to find. There is. My daughter, Geneva, is named after my grandmother, which I knew when she died at eight. I knew at eight years old, the Lord told me, at eight years old, that I would name my daughter. I would have a daughter. She would be my firstborn, and her name would be Geneva because Geneva was the patriarch of our family. And God wanted to continue in my daughter the same things that were happening in her bloodline. I knew that at eight years old, you guys. So much so that when I met Nikki and knew that I was going to get married to her, the very first thing I told her is, I don't want to date very long because I'm really ready to get married. Then I told her, and our first daughter will be named Geneva. And she thought... And my, my Nikki at the time was like, I don't even like that name. She's like, oh, but I love him. So I'll just agree to it. And then I'll get him to change his mind when we have our daughter. Like we're going to have a daughter. Who knows? Then our first, then on the very first appointment, when we found out it was a girl, I was like, Geneva. And she's like, dang it. But now she loves it. Our, our little Gigi bear, but you, you know what I'm saying? So it's uh, she's adorable. But the thing is, is God is looking to work through families. When he looked on the earth for, for somebody to save, he didn't say you and then you and then you. He said, Noah and your entire family, I want all of you. Now, Abraham, he looks on the family. Abraham had a whole family, had a whole tribe. But in the midst of it, he said, Abraham, your line, that's what I'm going to redeem. You, you, I, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the seashores. Go for it. And he does it. Here's the crazy part, that God doesn't do it through Abraham. It takes two more generations in order for it to be proved true. Does that make sense? 
See, what happens is God may be giving you a word you're convinced you're supposed to live out in your lifetime, but what if it's not for you, it's for your grandchildren? Are you still, will, are you still willing to work just as hard at the word of the Lord that he's given you if your grandchildren get it and not you? Are you going to be disappointed and offended because you don't see it in your lifetime? Then you're going to be really bummed out when you read Hebrews 11. Because Hebrews 11 goes like this. Maybe you've missed that part of Hebrews 11, but it's pretty much a bummer over and over and over again because it looks like this. It gets halfway through Hebrews 11, and it says, um, my brain. In the halfway through Hebrews 11, in verse 13, it says, these all died in faith. I'm sorry, I thought faith was supposed to make us live. No, they just died in it. Not having received the things they were promised. Oh, I thought faith meant that we were supposed to get it. No, faith was faith actually activates generational blessing, not you getting what you think you deserve. Faith activates generational inheritance that go from children to grandchildren to great-grandchildren to great-great-grandchildren, generation to generation. That's what God wants to sign us up for. But having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. Oh, you wanted to fit in? I'm sorry. You're a stranger and an exile. What happened to my relevant gospel? No, you're a stranger in exile. Enjoy it because that's your life. Oh, and it keeps going. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Isaac. By faith, Joseph. By faith, Moses. By faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. And then at verse 39, it says, And all these, though commended by their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God provided something better. What? You want to know what the only thing better is to a dad than getting what he thought he deserved? Watching his kids get even more. That's why the next passage says, and there's a great cloud of witnesses cheering you on so that when you get your promise, they get theirs. And then it goes even farther and says, by faith, Jesus Endured the cross for the what? The joy set before him. What was the joy? You. He saw you and said, it's not for me. It's for them. And I'll endure so that they get something better. And you're giving up early. Don't just don't give up. You want to know how to win in Christianity? Don't quit. I'm being totally serious with you. You want to know how to win at this thing? Don't ever give up. Not for one minute. Don't give up. If you want to win, don't quit. Okay? Let me jam through the rest of this. Y'all okay still? Okay. Sorry if the history stuff bores you. I just like it a lot. So we got, and then we get Moses. So, hey, Moses, what's up? He does some cool thing with a staff. It's pretty cool. But the most important thing that we get from Moses is we get the tabernacle. So God's gonna about, God is about to establish a way for his people to interact with them on a regular basis. Okay? So the tabernacle is built. The tabernacle's built. Then in the midst of the tabernacle being built, we have Moses, we have the prophets, then we have then we have all the prophets, and then we have this man who shows up whose name is David. And David is the first great reformer in all of church history. And let me tell you why. David is the first great reformer in all of church history because of the tabernacle of David. 
And I gave you a little bit of this, but let me tell you the short history. The short history is that the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark, which by the way is a big deal, the Ark, if you don't, it doesn't make any sense to us because we don't have anything like that. But the Ark is where literally the, the presence and the glory of God dwelt. That's huge, okay? And it is in a tabernacle. By the time of David, it is in a tabernacle at a place called Gibeon. Now, the wicked priests at the time, Eli and his wicked sons, they're wicked because they were stealing from the offering, by the way. Just that's a whole other teaching on worship that I would love to teach you about where the wicked sons are judged because they were literally worshiping for themselves and what they got out of it and not what others got out of it. So therefore, they were judged as wicked in all of history. When you're making worship about you and what you got out of it, it's deemed wicked. But David, in that time, the, the ark is at a place called Gibeon. They try to use the ark to promote themselves by bringing it out onto the battlefield. They take it out of the Holy of Holies, take it out onto the battlefield, and God says, I'm not here to defend you and be used by you. So they all get wiped out. Israel gets destroyed. And the Philistines take the ark, and they put it in their temple of Dagon at a city called Ashdod. Now, it's about to go... From Ashdod, it goes to Ekron, then goes to another city. But while it's at Ashdod, you guys know the story that the, you know, the temple of, da- the, 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 uh, uh, the idol of Dagon falls on his face right in front of the ark. They pick him back up, jack him back up and go, that was a weird thing. I can't believe that happened. Falls down again, his head and his hands are chopped off. And then all of a sudden boils break out in places that if I was to draw you diagrams, be greatly inappropriate. But then all of a sudden, then it goes to a city called Ekron. And in Ekron, it all breaks out again. They go, forget this thing. We want to get rid of it. They go to get rid of it. They try to get it to a third city. And the third city sees it coming from a far way off and says, do not bring it here. What are you trying to do? Kill us. By the way, we're talking about the presence of God. You want to know what the Bible says? Check this out. This, when I first read this, it, it kind of freaked me out a little bit. But check this out. It's in, first, it's in First Samuel. And it says this. <laughs> oh, it's Second Samuel, sorry. The first Samuel, check this out. In First uh, Samuel 5. In verse uh, 11 and 12, it says that they sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, let's send the ark. Let's send away the ark of God from Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us or our people. That's pretty crazy. For there was a deathly panic throughout all of the Philistine camps. Because of why? Check this out. The hand of God was very heavy there. If you were to look that up, The word there in the Hebrew is kabod. Do you know what kabod means? Glory. There was a deathly panic that set over the whole city that did not worship God or know God because when the glory showed up, everybody was dying. And do you think it's fun to just pray for glory and we just laugh and clap our hands and fall over and have really nice meetings? And when that thing breaks out, it should terrify you. Because you're not dealing with a God who is like you. He loves you, but he is God. And then from there, they send it back to Philistine, ends up at a a Levite camp. I'm just going to go real quick through it. Ends up at a Levite camp. They decide, let's open the ark to see if everything inside of it's okay. And when they do, 70,000 people die. And they thought that was a bad idea. So they store it at a house. David becomes king. And as David becomes king, the very first thing he says is that the glory of God needs to be back with the people of God. So let's go get the ark. So they go back to get the ark and they used a 
cart. Why'd they use a cart? Because that's what the Philistines used to get it back to the camp. Well, here, let me tell you a little something. That David went to go use the cart, and when he was walking with the cart, the cart started to wobble a little bit. Uzzah puts his hand out, and Uzzah touches the ark, and what happens to Uzzah? He dies. Why? Because just because the world is using something does not mean it gives you permission to use it. See, we are trying to use the world's means to bring the glory of God back to the people of God, and it will not work. Your church that looks like a business will not work to declare the glory of God to a generation. If it looks like a business, smells like a business, acts like a business, it is a business, and it's not going to bring glory to anyone but you. So they drop it off at a dude, uh, dude's house named Obed-Edom. They drop it off at Obed-Edom's house, and they say, oh, let's, uh, let's just leave it there for a while. David goes, forget it. Obed-Edom's house is being blessed. We, that blessing deserves to be at the whole pe- all the people of God. So he says, well, how do we get the ark back? He looks in the word of God, and he finds out that he needs priests with poles. So he finds priests with poles, finds Levites, makes the poles, goes and gets the ark, put the poles through the side of the ark. They put it up on their shoulders, and every six steps, they stop, set the ark down, offer a sacrifice, and worship God for 26 miles. And as they get closer to the city, six steps at a time, they start shouting something you might have heard before because it's in Psalm 24. And as they get closer to the city, they start yelling, be lifted up, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors. For the king of glory, so that the king of glory may come in. And then from the top of the walls, because they saw the ark coming, they said, who is this king of glory? And they shout back, the Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. And then they shout out again, lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors. That the king of glory may come in. And then they shout back, who is this king of glory? And they shout back, the Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. And David, in the midst of this, throws off his clothes. And we've been told that David was dancing in his underwear, and that is a lie. David was not in his underwear. Do your homework. It says that David was in his ephod. And an ephod is what a priest wore. So David had on his kingly garments, and under his kingly garments, he had a priest robe on, an ephod on. And while he was getting all stirred up in the worship that was taking place, and with the presence of God coming back, he throws off his kingly garments and said, I'd rather be a priest than a king. I don't care what platform the world wants to put me on, what crown they put on my head, what sort of distinction they give me on earth. I just want to be a priest before God forever. And no wonder Saul's daughter gets so, so upset. No wonder she gets ticked off. She goes, everything, my fa- everything in my family line was in those robes. And, and anybody would kill to have those robes on. And you just threw them on the ground. And he says this, I will become even more undignified. Because I'm not worried about what the world thinks about me. I don't care about their titles or their platforms. I want God and God alone. And then he puts the, puts the ark in a little tent. He puts the ark in a little tent and says, let's worship God day and night, 24 hours a day with music, song, and offerings to God. But there was another tabernacle, Moses's, and it's over here. This, Zion, this, Gibeon. And I've heard people preach that this was an empty tabernacle because the the actual presence was here. And so these stupid priests shouldn't have gone back and ministered there. They should have abandoned that tabernacle and gone to be with David. But it was David who instituted the Zadok priesthood to go back to Gibeon and minister there. 
with all the instruments that were inside the tabernacle without any presence. Why? And David says it because God never told us to stop. So we're going to keep doing it even when we don't feel anything. Because God said to keep doing it. But I don't feel anything. It's okay. God is in it still. And then the last piece, and then we'll take a break, is the temple. The temple is built by Solomon. Solomon's temple. David, as a good father, says, I see that you have a te- God, that you have a tent, God. I have a house. I want you to have a house. God says, you're not going to build me a house because there's blood on your hands. And he said, but I'm going to let your son build it. And, in, and a good, the difference between a good father and a leader is like this. This is what I told the, the schools yesterday. The difference between a good father and a leader is a good leader just says, the word of God is on you. Go build it. A good father says, I'm not building it, but my son is. Then I'm going to make sure he has everything he needs to be a success. So David, at the end of his life, is building all of the means, putting together all the resource to build a temple he'll never see. Okay? Temple, de- temple built, temple destroyed. Very sad. Now they're in exile, and then we're going to pick back up with one last piece, a man named Ezra, and we'll do that right after the break, and then we'll keep going. Okay? Ready, break. Oh, then we just bless you as a son. Like, for real. That's ridiculous. I always think my words are terrible, so I'm just glad to hear that they're not. Where's your wife? Oh, that's cute. What was your name again? Kenzie. What's your daughter's name? What? Betsy. Maxie? Are we just going with the E's? I didn't know. Maxine. <laughs> you don't have anything to live up to. You guys are adorable. You're such a good mom. I just feel like he's even just delivering you from stuff from your childhood by being a mom. Like you get to look at your little girl in a way that you feel like you never got looked at. It's so healing for your heart. You're going to mother so many other little ones that maybe aren't even yours, but they're yours. Because you love so well. No more questions. I just think it's when you hear stuff like that, there's just you have to understand that there's I really genuinely don't know what I'm doing. Like sometimes there's this model that if you get a word like that or somebody gets impacted like that, you really must know what you're doing. And I just, I genuinely don't. But I know what I do have, which is courage. Like I'm not, I'm not afraid of what people think or I'm not afraid of admitting if I'm wrong or messing up. That I'm not afraid of. And I promise you, you guys, if you're just not afraid, if you're not afraid of failure, then you'll never fail. 
because you'll learn from every single thing that you do, regardless of if it doesn't work out or not. You know, you give a terrible word and then you're like, oh, that was a terrible word. I'm so sorry. You know, I don't, I mean, that's how we learn. I don't know why we're allowed to practice being pastors and we're allowed to practice other spiritual gifts, but we can't practice prophecy or practice tongues. Why are we not allowed to practice these things? I don't know, man. If God has gifts and he's handing them out, I want them all. And I said it before, but I'm, it's, it's a theme song. The Holy Spirit has all the gifts. He lives in you. Therefore, you have all the spiritual gifts. You have all of them. You get to operate in everything because he's good and he really likes you. <laughs> all right. That kind of is ridiculous. Jeff Reed's a nut job, so I like that guy too. We just happened to, and we were just, we, and after that, we happened to be in Mozambique together with them. Like, was anybody in Mozambique when I was there? Okay. With Jeff Reed, it was so ridiculous. We just happened to be in Africa at the same time in Mozambique with Heidi. And then um, also Lindy and her brother just happened to be there. And if you don't know Lindy, I'm sorry for you. She's probably one of my favorite worship leaders on earth. So she's amazing. I tell people that all the time, but they don't know who she is, so they don't believe me. And then they hear her lead worship, and she's like Misty Edwards on steroids. <laughs> she's scary. She starts leading worship, and you're like, I don't know what's going to happen. You know what I mean? Like, either we're all going to cry or, like, something's going to blow up. I'm not quite sure what's going to happen when she starts leading worship and just pounding. That's why I like when she plays piano because it makes her forget that she's like actually leading something. So she just, I make her play piano whenever we lead together. I love leading with her. Um, but we were all down in Mozambique together and it's just crazy. And we also at that, at that, um, at that DTS, we took like a $36,000 offering in a classroom here on this base, right? It was, we paid for everybody's trip. And then paid for Jeff's trip. His whole family. Isn't that ridiculous? That's the largest offering I've ever taken. And there was only like 70 people in the room or 60 people in the room, right? It was dumb. It was so dumb. I was like, this is the craziest thing I've ever seen in my whole life. And people just like, were, it was a mess in the room afterwards. You guys, it's just, this is what's possible. When we get into the kingdom, when we just kind of just throw ourselves and immerse ourselves in the kingdom of God, stuff happens that you're just like, I just, I didn't know that was even possible. With Ezra, so let's jump in here. So we got family, family, family. With Ezra, about 440-ish. <laughs> That's an actual date, 440-ish. Ezra, um, Ezra and Nehemiah, we run into, and I want to show there's two things real quick that I just want to cover with Ezra and Nehemiah because they're in Babylonian exile. And then in the midst of Babylonian exile, uh, Ezra for short gets word from the Lord, asks the king, the king shows him favor. He goes, but Ezra establishes what we call hermeneutical law. 
Ezra is the one who establishes how we should read the Bible, study the Bible, and then apply the Bible. It actually all begins with this one man right here. And in fact, it also establishes how we gather and how we're supposed to gather around the word of God. If you look at Nehemiah 8, it says this, And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had built for such a purpose. And beside him stood the elders. And it's a list of these elders. And Ezra opened the book in, all, in the sight of all the people. For he was above all the people. Which is like crazy. They built him like a stage basically. So that he could teach everyone. And this is where we actually get the synagogue. Okay. So if you ever wonder where we get like in Jewish history. All of a sudden there's a synagogue. This is the roots of it. Because nobody had studied the Bible. And taught people how to apply it at that point. Now, Jews, uh, the Jewish, uh, the Jude- Jewish faith will take some of uh, Ezra's laws and Ezra's way of doing it, and now they apply it to things like the Tal. That ends up becoming the Talmud, which was the Mishnah and a couple other things put into one. But I, we don't have time to go into total Jewish history. But you need to know that if you just are studying the word for how to apply it, you'll misunderstand that it's about a person, not all about a law. So you have to understand that this is he's that the Bible is not a topical study for your life. Like this whole idea of topically studying the Bible doesn't work. It doesn't work because you're missing out on vast amounts of information because this story is about God. This book is the story of God, not about how to fix your marriage. See, that's why I tell people all the time the greatest travesty in our generation is a lack of the knowledge of God, not a lack of understanding the word or good theology. We have tons of book about, books about good theology, but we just don't know the God behind it, so we end up throw, screwing the whole thing up. This book is about God, not about you. <laughs> and you have to understand that this book is not about you. This whole thing is not about you. It's not about you. It never has been about you, and it never will be about you. We've made the center of the story us, and the center of the story is Jesus. Right? I said it in the other school, but day one, create Genesis one, day one, know you. Day two, know you. Day three, know you. Day four, know you. Day five, know you. Day six, you show up after monkeys, and then your first job is rest. He did all of it without you. And when Adam woke up and opened his eyes, what's the first thing he saw? himself? No, he saw God. He saw God. And right here he says, and they opened, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people for he was above all the people. And as he, he opened it, all the people stood and Ezra blessed the Lord and, and the great God. And all the people answered, amen, amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So they basically had a worship service. So this is like, he got up on the stage and they worshiped. Then it says, um, in verse 7, chapter 8, verse 7, um, the end of verse 7, um, all these, uh, basically all the priests and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. The word clearly there is actually the word interpretation. So they read with interpretation. So they weren't just reading the word, which happens a ton of times before this. The prophets would get up and just read from the word, and then you were supposed to know what it meant. You know what I mean? Like, there was like, it, it was like a great big word, and they just read from the word. This is the first time in scripture where it's it says that the Bible was read with interpretation. Okay? So, which is why it's so important in Jewish history, but it's also why it's so important in our history. Because we have access for not just how to, to hear the word, but how to interpret it. What are we supposed to do with that? 
with interpretation and they gave and they gave the and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading now this is really important because it establishes uh hermeneutical law which um that's probably not spelled right but i have worse spelling as the class the last few days has noticed hermeneutical law and we get the foundation of the synagogue. Now, crazy part is the synagogue has two versions, local and global. Or I mean, uh, and great, excuse me. Local and great. And the reason this, this is going to be important when we get to this man. Here's why. Look, the, the local synagogue is actually an expression we find in Ezekiel chapter 8. In Ezekiel chapter 8, we see that Ezekiel, it says, in the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day, that's pretty specific, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord fell upon me there. They were in the house discussing the law, discussing the word. They were together and they had a localized version of a great version that was established by Ezra. So they had a way that they could disseminate information to everyone, but there was a local expression in living rooms. And I want to tell you that Jesus reestablishes the local version of the synagogue because the great version had taken over and people had demeaned the local version because they really liked going to meetings instead of having the meetings in their home. That doesn't sound familiar at all. Because there is just as much presence in living rooms as there was in really big gatherings. Oh, don't worry. It gets plenty more offensive. We'll just keep going. Because what happened is something settled in over these next chunk of time. Okay? Right here, 500 years before. Okay? We'll just call it B.C. There is a silence. Eh, we could put four to five hundred years. It's debatable. There is a silent period between the Old Testament and Jesus where the New Testament begins. You guys know that. There's a silent period. But here's what happens. When we get an understanding of the law and we start to mobilize and we start to gather and we start to organize, there's things like, I can't, that I just wish, it's so boring that it doesn't really work talking about it in front of everybody, because it's just boring information, but I find it super interesting about the study of Jewish uh, hermeneutics and Jewish law and Jewish, uh, the context for Jewish culture, because you don't, because we don't understand 90% of what Jesus was addressing was bad studying of scripture that happened in this season applied to this season. There's a whole season here that these guys were trying to interpret and everyone outside of Ezra. And all of a sudden you get all these priests and high priests and chief priests. And all of a sudden you have this organized, mobilized body with good information. But they use the information to protect their, they use their information to protect their position, not to find out more about God. And so, and it, it says it right in your Bible. It says, that Caiaphas, the high priest, said, if we let this man live, we will lose what? Our temple. They literally said, this could be the man, but if we don't kill him, we'll lose our position. And it's more important, and it's actually more beneficial to us that Jesus dies, and we don't lose our position, than we actually receive him as who we believe he is. I don't care if you don't believe in the gifts. That's actually irrelevant information. 
I don't care how you believe the Holy Spirit is is supposed to show up. That's actually irrelevant information because we're not trying to figure out exactly how he's supposed to show up. We're just supposed to go get him. And if all this information and experience doesn't lead us to Jesus, if all of this Old Testament isn't pointed to the man, but pointed to us and our organization, then we end up crucifying what we prayed a hundred years for. And we have to get this or else we'll have such good information about how to do the work of God, we forgot how to do the will of God. And we have to get this right. So we've got this gap in the, in the, in the, between the Testaments. And the synagogue was created in that little gap. I'm not going to go over that. But you can get uh, yesterday's. And I go into that a little bit more in detail. But by the time of Jesus Christ. By the time Jesus shows up on the scene. There is an organized ecclesiastical authority. That has been developed under the Sanhedrin. The synagogue ends up creating the Sanhedrin. And here's who in, who's in charge of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin has, uh, a, has, a, has a few different points. Okay. Uh, I, I don't know how to give you just part of this. Um, it's so hard because there's so much information that like would help, but I, I don't have time for it. All you, all you need to know is this, that there was, um, there was an organized, uh, Sanhedrin that basically had a few different functions. You had a high priest, you had the chief priest, you have the scribes, the scribes were the lawyers, the scribes, by the time Jesus shows up, that's why he's on top of Jerusalem, weeping over the prophets and the scribes. Do you ever see that? And you're like, why is, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you slain your prophets and your scribes? Did you ever wonder why he's like talking about scribes? You're like, that doesn't even make sense. Why? Because the scribes were the ones who determined what the word, how the word was applied. Does that make sense? He's weeping over the prophets because you slain your prophets because they're releasing the authentic living word that God is delivering right now. But you slain your scribes because they're the ones who are trying to give you an actual way to walk this out. But because you don't like the way that they're deciphering the word, you kill them. That's why Jesus is on top of Jerusalem, brokenhearted over a city and a nation and a people. Because instead of walking in what God has for them, they're walking in what will promote them. That's why we have freaking prophets all over the planet Googling people to give good words. And why we have people who are offended at healers all over the planet because they're faking something God actually wants to authentically release. But instead of getting offended with the dude who's doing it wrong, go be a person who does it right. High priest, chief priests, scribes and lawyers, elders who represented the laity. So the elders is where the crossover is into the local body. Because what happened is you had the Sanhedrin, and I'm just going to say it as gently as I can, that the Catholic Church operates in the very same way that the Sanhedrin operates, which simply means this. There is a head body. There's a head Sanhedrin. You know what I mean? So there's, I'm not going to try to spell that. Good Lord, I'll, that'll just be offensive to everyone in the room. The Sanhedrin, there's a, great, there's a great body who makes the decisions, but then those decisions are passed down through the elders and, a, high, and a, a, a priest in each of these bodies, and their job is to determine how to apply the word and then tell the local bodies how to apply the word. So the local bodies aren't allowed to decide any um, interpretation for themselves. They have to get it handed to them. Does that make sense? So by the time Jesus shows up, this body is fully functioning. 
And these high priests, Caiaphas, these guys are telling all these local guys, hey, Jesus isn't the Messiah. And so because this is how it functions, they just believe, well, he must not be the Messiah. Not because they decided it for themselves. That's why you get Nicodemus sneaking out in the middle of the night. Because he's going, I just got handed this information from them. I don't really believe it myself. So I'm going to try to sneak away into the source and see if I can get better information. So the Sanhedrin is the one who hands down the sentence to Jesus. But it's also this. It says that when, as soon, what we need to understand is that as soon as our interpretation of the scriptures become equal to the scriptures themselves, we are in a very, very, very bad position. Does that make sense? When our traditions and our interpretations end up becoming equal to scripture, like this is the way I'd put it. It's very, I I don't, I'll say it this way. It's something I said earlier, but when a pastor gives you an interpretation and you equal that interpretation to the, the Bible itself, because that person who said it, you trust, you are on a slope to heresy that is super steep and super fast. Because you didn't study that yourself. You didn't fight for it. You didn't work for it. You don't know where it comes from. You have to go find it yourself because that's what Jesus was actually giving you access to. Okay? So we don't just listen to somebody's podcast and go, that's really good information. I think it's, I think it's the Lord. And then you go preaching it everywhere but have nothing to back it up. But somebody said it that you really like. We had a dream come to us in our house of prayer. And in the dream, there was a man, there was a pastor standing in front of thousands of people. And he had this big book open, which looked like the Bible. And he was preaching and the people got all stirred up. And in the dream, the girl that had the dream, she walked up and walked to the front and looked behind, looked over the shoulder of the man who was preaching and taped inside of his Bible were quotes from other men. And the Lord comes up behind her in the dream and says, as long as my people As long as my people are okay with preaching another man's word, they will never function in power. And the Lord, I think I I told you guys this when I was here in the morning, but the Lord told me a long time, a a while ago, when I was reading the studies, uh, when I was studying the prodigal son, that um, when you're hungry, you'll eat the leftovers of pigs. You'll eat the crumbs of commentaries. But when you get starving, you'll go home to the father's house. And the role of the pastor is not to feed you. That's how we create leeches instead of lambs. Pastor's job is not to feed you. Well, the pastor's not feeding me. They're not, they're not supposed to feed you. When Jesus went to Peter and said, feed my sheep, Peter was not there thinking that, the, that his role was to grab grass out of the ground, put it in the sheep's mouth, help him chew, rub his throat until he swallows, rub his belly until it comes out on the other end. The role of a shepherd is to is to give a safe environment for sheep to eat. If they choose not to eat, it's a sign of a sick sheep, not a sick shepherd. Eat if you want, die if you don't. It's not my responsibility. I gave you the access to it. Well, then I'll just go find another church. Well, isn't that convenient? Apostolic church, you didn't have a choice. You were in a city, you got that church. It doesn't really matter what you thought about them. Maybe the Lord's actually telling you if you stick around long enough, you'll learn something. And you stop church hopping. Matthew is written, now let's, uh, so here's where we have a split. So now we have a Jewish tradition and we have a Christian tradition. So now these faiths are split right here. 
And the cause is Jesus. The Jewish people who focus on rationale and interpretation of the word that's come through the Mishnah and that uh, that's, uh, was then conformed into the Talmud, they believe uh, they, do, they do not believe that the Messiah has come, that Jesus was a good teacher, that he was a, a great rabbi, but he was not um, the son of God, that he was not Messiah. So they split off there, and down is not like a, a doctrinal statement. It's just a arrow. <laughs> All these go down, like, I hope that nobody's thinking that that's, you know what I mean? Like, maybe it should go up. These are the things I think about. I apologize. So then, so we have the Christian faith, and I I don't have time to do all this stuff. I just, um, we could do, like, a whole series on, like, just Christian history. But I want to, what I want to hit is a kingdom. So just to give you guys the jump start, this is where we end up. Okay? Jesus is supposed to be pointing us to two realities. Number one, a garden here. Number two, a garden here. Jesus' life is to give us back what we had in the garden so that we could live in it through our lives so that we could return to the garden when we die. Okay? His goal is to point us. Now, when I say that, I'm not talking about a literal garden. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is communion with God. What I'm talking about is what God established in the garden was communion, 100% clean and pure with God. Jesus Christ died on the cross so that you could have communion with God again. No middleman, nothing. You and God get to be together again. That's what Jesus, that's what the cross paid for. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have what? Eternal life. We've told generations eternal life is heaven, and we've lied to them because that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says in John 17, now this is eternal life. He's going to answer John 3, 16. He says, now this is eternal life. What? To know God and Christ Jesus whom he sent. That's eternal life. Eternal life is the knowledge of God. It begins today. The reason we don't want, we want eternal life, the reason we want eternal life to be heaven is so that we don't have any responsibility until we're dead. We're hoping that we can live however we want, show up to heaven, and God's just going to work it all out. Wrong. The road is narrow and few find it. That's Jesus' way of saying it's really hard. And if you think it's easy, you're going to miss it. Because I didn't die for you to go into heaven or go to church. What I died for was for you to have communion with the Father so that you could get to know the Father. And since it takes forever to get to know him, you get to start it during your lifetime. And when you cross over into eternity, you continue it forever. At here, at uh, 1054, we have what's called the Great Schism. <laughs> yeah, how you like that? Fascismanism. Okay, what we have at the Great Schism is essentially there's a period where the Catholic Church becomes divided. Now, I want to say this statement, and it's a very big one in terms of most of our Christian brothers and sisters. You are writing off years of Catholicism and your arrogance, and that's hundreds of years of your church history you should know about. Catholics are not evil people. And their actual theology is not that Mary is equal with God. (laughs) You need to do your homework. I don't have time to go into all that either, but it's fun. I can make statements like that and you get to go look it up. Have fun with that. But here's the point. You shouldn't write it off. Just so you know, like when I go and hang out at a church, it's usually a Catholic one. Because in all honesty, I love the reverence for God that I don't find in the Christian church very often. And they believe in signs and wonders still too. They have holiness and signs and wonders. I think that's pretty cool. Huh. Whatever. So, 
here, so it breaks off into two sects. You get Roman Catholic and you get Orthodox. Okay? Orthodox ends up uh, getting rid of the Pope eventually, and they end up saying that they don't follow a Pope. And There's a bunch there that's just kind of craziness, but in, in, what you end up with is Greek Orthodox. There's a few of them. You end up with Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, and Serbian. I always forget the Serbian one, so I apologize in advance, but I forget that one a lot. But there's Greek, Russian, and Serbian. They all started sort of different times, but they're all from the same line where there's this, and there's a year, there's years where there is two popes. It's a whole crazy thing, you guys. It's like the craziness of the church. And, um, but there's, there's a whole lot that happens during that season. Then, um, trying to remember a few things, sorry. Um, cause there's the Mishnah that gets created in there. There's feastal letters, there's councils, um, like 325. You guys, there's a lot that happens in these seasons where like the new Testament is confirmed. The Trinity is confirmed by councils. Your old Testament was confirmed back here. So there's lots of these councils that you're going to want to look up and find out your history about. Like, because most people can't defend the word because they don't even know where the word came from. How did we end up with those books in those times with those words? How did that happen? How did it end up going from like Greek to Latin to Greek? Back? How did all this happen? We need to understand it because we need to be able to, we need to have confidence in it, you guys. And if you don't study it, you're not going to have confidence in it. Yeah. And you're like, well, that sounds boring. Great. Some things are worth being boring and going after. Oh, it's just not entertaining. Well, I'd rather have an encounter than be entertained. So go get the things that are going to draw you into encounter. Even if it doesn't feel good. Just go for it, okay? So now, during the Roman Catholic, a lot of stuff that you do know, because, uh, because you probably studied it before, you have Wycliffe. Wycliffe is awesome. And Wycliffe is awesome for this. He's considered the morning star of modern reformation. He's considered the morning star because he's the first person that began to speak out against the, the Bible, not being in the common language of the people and had to be delivered through only the leaders of the church. That's the easy way of saying it. Okay. And he was anti this, wasn't a big fan of it. There's a lot of other things that go in it, but he had favor with Kings and with educators. And he was one of the only reformers during that, that whole deal that wasn't killed or died. He literally just died of old age. Why? Because he had so much favor on his life, but he pissed off everybody. I'm serious. 40 years after he died, the Catholic church went, dug up his body and burned his bones to ash so that nobody would remember him. But this is what one poet said. One poet said they took the ashes of Wycliffe, put him in a stream. They found its way that found its way to a river, which found its way to a lake, which opened up to the ocean. And then all the nations were blessed by the message of Wycliffe. Here's what's crazy. This dude, then he had a whole bunch of people named Lullards. Lullards are essentially, if you hear that term, the Lullards are literally those who took, you guys, there's no printing press. They are writing by hand chunks of the Bible so that they could take them into individual homes, walking them into homes and handing them to people inside of homes. And could you imagine for the first time ever going, I had to go to the priest or I had to go to the leaders in order to get these words. And now they're sitting in my house, handwritten by a man named John Wycliffe. Could you imagine getting the word of God for the first time, handwritten in your own tongue? You could read it for yourself. And that just, that stuff's just crazy to me, I, whatever. But these Lollards were a group of people who followed Wycliffe's teachings. But because the church hated Wycliffe so much, they burned most of his books, most of his teachings. But some of them were left in a little school you may have never heard of called Oxford because he taught there. Now, what happens is the borders of Prague are opened up to these, to, uh, these nations. So what happens is a man 
Some of the followers of a man named Jan Haas, or John Huss, if you're English, okay? So, John Haas is a man who is preaching at Bethlehem Church in Prague. But because the borders were open so that others could go and visit Oxford, some people who are followers of Haas go into Oxford, find books by a man named Wycliffe, go, I know somebody who would like these books. They take those books back to a man named Jan Haas. Jan Haas finds the books and begins to preach them begins to find stuff in the scripture that he'd never found before. He goes, I didn't even know this was possible. I didn't even know this was whatever, which is the good part about other man's teachings. Does that make sense? Because what it caused was John Haas to go, dang, I'm not crazy. So he starts to look it up. What is he preaching against? John Haas is preaching against the selling of indulgences. He's preaching on it in Bethlehem Church, not much breakthrough in uh, the city of Prague. But then it says, your history books say this. Then on one Sunday, <laughs> Then on one Sunday, three young artists go into three separate churches and they sang a song. And they sang, priest thou liest, your indulgences are a fraud. They were immediately drugged into the streets and beheaded. Notice that it doesn't say they stood in front and preached it. They didn't pray it. They didn't walk in and silently pray. They stood up in the middle of the service and sang a new song. Why? Because weeks later... That melody is still going to be lodged right here. And that melody and that phrase is stuck. And they walked and they, they, uh, they were drug out and beheaded. And it says that the, 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 the women of the town picked up their bodies and their blood was spilled throughout the whole town all the way to the church of Bethlehem where they were buried. And it says from that moment fire, from that moment forward, the whole city was set ablaze with the fires of reformation. Jan Haas was burned at the stake. <laughs> Being a reformer doesn't always have great benefits. He's burned at the stake, and this is sort of lore and legend, but one of the legends you'll read, it's not confirmed, but it's pretty consistent, is that while he was being burned at the stake, he prophesied that 100 years from now, a man will come and the fire of reformation will not be silenced. Almost 100 years to that day, we meet another man named Luther. Now, I want to say this. I've sat in, um, I sat in the room where Martin Luther in, the, the, in Eisenach, in, uh, in, the, in the castle, in the very room where Luther translated the New Testament. And I sat and I cried in the corner like a baby. I'm sure it was not attractive to some of the tourists. <laughs> sat in the room where he translated the New Testament. And Luther, now, again, all of Luther's theologies were not correct, but... Uh, you have the 95 theses. You guys know some of this history, so I don't have to bore you with some of that stuff. But essentially what we end up seeing, which I think is crazy, is that right here we end up with a split where uh, the Lutheran church is built and the Protestant movement begins. Okay? There's a split here where... Uh, there's a split there where basically what we end up with... I don't know how to continue this, but this is... Essentially, you still have the Roman Catholic Church that just kind of continues on as well. So the Roman Catholic Church continues. Popes, the whole deal, they just continue. Luther makes a split here, or a split here, actually, because right here, another man shows up, a man named Calvin. Now, out of Calvinism, Calvin, Calvin was actually one of the first guys to scientifically study the Word of God. You're, gonna, you're like, this is boring information. Let me tell you. I, I am a one-point Calvinist, by the way. If you don't know, there's more than one point for Calvinists, but I am a one point Calvinist. I believe in the depravity of man and the brokenness of man's heart and the wickedness of man's heart. 
okay? And some people are like, oh, some people are Calvinists. Some people are, I don't care what you are. I don't really care. All I know is I believe in the depravity of man, um, although the, I don't believe in some of the predestination stuff and a few other things that I do hold on to. Out of Calvinism, you're going to get a few things. You're going to get, um, you're going to get the Anabaptist movement. You're going to get the Mennonites. And you're going to get Presbyterians. Presbyterians were birthed by a man you might know as well named John Knox. Okay, so that's what happens there. Now, here's what's crazy. So out of this as well, you get a man named Wesley who starts a church called the Methodist Church. Now, here's what's crazy about the Methodist Church. Well, we end up, the Methodists are loosely tied to, are loosely tied to uh, something you might know as the Moravians. Now, the Moravians to me are the greatest revival and reformation in all of his church history. I, and here's why I'd say that. Number one, it was completely pure. Number one, there's, you're not going to find, in fact, there's so much stuff. I could go on forever about the Moravians. I love the Moravians. I sat in Hernhut. I went to Hernhut, spent a week in Hernhut, sat in Hernhut, laid on Zinzendorf's graves, and then stayed in, his ho- stayed in the house across the street from his, from his, man, from his, uh, from his house as they were rebuilding it. And I, I actually stayed in the apartment where they uh, organized the missionaries to be sent out all over the world. They had turned it into an apartment, and that's where we were staying. And out of our window, you stared right across the street. I actually stole bricks from the house. (laughs) Well, they were throwing them away. They had taken out, like, the foundation to build a new foundation. So there was these bricks from the foundation of his house. Let's just say my luggage was very heavy coming back. Because I believe God wanted to rebuild the the foundation of uh, Zinzendorf's home. Because here's what happens when the Zinzendorf... Here's what happens. So... John Haas carries this message, and it moved, there's a movement called the United Brethren or the Haasites, okay? Now, the Haasites at first became super terrible. There's the Haasite Wars, and they were going to war over, like, um, over um, communion and a ton of stuff, okay? But what happens is a guy named Christian David breaks off from that and says, we don't want to go to war. We don't want to do all this stuff. We just want to be with God. We just want to be with God. We want to just have our own space. And they looked for a land that was not their own. So they're wandering and send a letter to a man named Count. Zinzendorf. And Zinzendorf has tons of land, tons of space, and invites them to come. But let me tell you this, that Zinzendorf, this is the craziness to me, is Zinzendorf, if you look it up, um, if you know anything about Zinzendorf, he had an encounter with a picture, a painting actually, a painting called um, Eka Homo. Eka Homo. And it's painted by a man, Domenico uh, Fiti. I'm not sure if I'm saying it right. F-E-T-I. And basically, he was on a tour, basically, for scholar, for education and the whole deal. But he walks into this art museum, artist. He walks into an art museum, sees a painting. Of, it's a, it literally says, uh, it's called um, Behold the Man is what the actual, from Latin. Behold the Man. And it portrayed the crucified Christ with the legend at the bottom of it. This, this is what it said at the bottom of it. This I have done for you. Now what will you do for me? The painting impacts Zinzendorf so much, he feels like that's the moment of his conversion. And he says, I will do anything to promote the gospel to the ends of the earth. He gets a letter from Christian David that says, we are Hossites, we are wanderers, we are nomads, and we are looking for a place that is ours. And he says, come and live in my backyard. 
we, they have the spot where they cut down the first tree, like memorialized. It's crazy stuff. You guys, there's so much that happened in Hernhut. But do you understand that in Hernhut, there was a prayer meetings that lasted, lasted 120, 100 and some odd years, but there's not a prayer room in Hernhut. Do you know how they perpetuated that many years of nonstop prayer and worship? 36 families. And they would each take times and they would pass it from one family to the next. And they'd pray in their homes. No prayer room. No tabernacle of David theology. Just families loving their city and their families so much. They said, we're going to cry out for it. In fact, a bunch of teenagers, teenagers get stirred up. And they go to the top of one of these towers. We got to go to the top of this tower. They unlocked it for us. It was very sketchy, but it was awesome. And you could see the whole surrounding area. And these families could hear these teenagers who had crawled to this thing. And they heard them yelling and shouting from the, the city nearby. And they got so ticked off night after night after night that they went over the tower. And they were going over in the tower in the middle of the night to basically tell these kids to knock it the heck off. When they get to the tower, close enough to the tower to hear what they're, what they're saying, they heard the teenagers praying for their lost friends and weeping and moaning and groaning for their lost friends. And instead of rebuking them, they climbed the tower and joined them. Zinzendorf was also known for in the midst of like church services, because there is a church, which by the way, which we had such crazy encounters there, you guys. So it was like, I, the last day I was there, I'm like, I'm going to pray in the church one more time. So I, I walked over to the church and I like walked up early in the morning, sunrise. And I, I go to the door and the door's locked. And I'm like, oh, dang, I guess I'll just sit on the steps. And all I hear is this lady talking to me in German. I have no idea what she's saying. She's just yelling at me like from the window. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, English, like stupid. I don't know what to say. I and she walks, I, I kind of walk over because she's saying, come here. And I'm like, I don't understand anything you're saying. I'm so sorry. And she takes out of her pocket the keys to the, the Moravian church and says, here. And hands me the keys to the Moravian church. Which if you believe in prophetic acts at all, that is a very significant one. And so I went and unlocked the church. And I went and just caught on my face for an hour or so before we had to leave. And just prayed and cried out to God in this, this little room where Zinzendorf went during the services. During the services, he was known for forgetting what was going on on stage. Because Christian David and those guys were, were doing the meetings. And he would go and hang out with the kids and write songs with children. That's what Zinzendorf was doing. But it was an artist that spurred him on. He had an encounter with a piece of art that didn't point to itself. It pointed to God. If you're still busy making art that points back to you, then it's not really art. And it's not actually that creative. Because anybody can do a piece of art that points back to themselves. Well, I'm just trying to express myself. Art is selfish at its core. And if art points back to you, then it will just be about you. But we as the church have got to start making art and being creative in a way that when we do something, it points to something bigger than us. My biggest thing with art is simply this. We're supposed to be creative. We should be the most creative force on the planet. Genesis 1, the very first description of God is creative. In the beginning, God created. And he didn't look at an encyclopedia. He didn't have Google. Out of his creative genius, he created everything you've seen on the planet. And it says that those stars and those trees declare the glory of God. And if you stop singing, the rocks themselves will cry out. They all point to God. 
And we're making art that points to us. Look how cool my church is. Look how cool my prayer room is. Look how cool my stuff is. Look how cool my song is. Look how cool I am. Look how cool I am. It's not anointed. It's just creative. Way to go, you. But who cares? I also say to that that the devil never created one thing. There's no such thing as secular music and Christian music. There's no such thing as Christian art and secular art. There is no such thing because the devil never created anything. He's only a perverter and a distorter, not a creator. So therefore, God was trying to release something. The church didn't want it because it didn't sound like what they wanted. So they rejected it. The world took it, embraced it, so the devil could distort it. I don't care if you don't like rap music. It's still God's music. God created it. Now, all the enemy had to do was put his lyrics on top of it, so now you're not allowed to listen to it. Does that make sense? For years, we tell our kids that, like, we kick in their door, they're listening to music, and we, like, kick in the door. What is that junk you're listening to? And the same, the same words come out of every young, young person's mouth. I wasn't listening to the lyrics. I was just listening to the music. Right? Isn't that, like, that's like the stereotypical teenage response, correct? You know what's crazy? They're right. Because they're getting moved by something that was supposed to have God on top of it, but it got distorted by the enemy, and they're still being moved by it. Does that make sense? I'm not saying you should listen to a bunch of crappy music and let it ruin your brain or something. All I'm saying is there's something under there that innately belongs to God and belongs to us, but we gave it up to the world, so they got to put their lyrics on it before we did. Because we're still worried about fitting in, and they're just worried about being creative. My thing with art is simply this. I want to see a generation make something authentic that points to God. That's worship. Authenticity that points to God is going to be super. It, like, I'm just trying to use what God gave me. Look, if God gave you two chords and a broken guitar, that is enough. That's enough. Because you're actually more created with li- creative when you have limits, not when you have anything you want. Necessity is the mother of invention. Does that make sense? Necessity is the birthplace of all innovation. Necessity means this. I need to create something, but I only have this. So you have to be creative with what you were given in order to create something new. That's what you need. But but we want everything. I want the best studio with the best thing and the best this and the right environment with the right lights and the right that. Anybody can be creative in that. No, but dude, I remember I was in this big church and everybody came to worship and the lights were perfect and the sound was perfect and the presence of God came. Well, of course the presence of God came. Everybody was there to worship and you had perfect sound, perfect lights, perfect everything. You want to show me that you're a real worship leader? Go lead worship on the streets. Does the same presence come? Are you really anointed? Let's find out. Let's find out. We'll go put you somewhere where nobody believes in God. Bust out your same guitar. Sing the same songs. Did the same presence show up? Or was it just a manifestation of what was already in the building when you showed up and had nothing to do with you? You're actually not that anointed. They were just really prepped and had great promotion and great lights and great sound. Are you really creative or do you just have a bunch of really well-paid people around you? Huh. Did you get that? You got that? Okay. She was filming me in the front, so I thought I'd just make sure, camera, that you got that. (laughs) 
All right, moving on. Okay, just give you a few more. But, but if you have not studied the Moravians, just pay attention to it. You guys know the Moravian call. You know what was said uh, as they were getting on ships to go to a slave island where the gospel couldn't pre- be preached. They sold themselves into slavery. And as the boat was leaving, they said, they said, um, <clears throat> may the lamb of heaven receive the reward of his suffering. May the lamb of heaven, he's, they're leaving their families sold into slavery. And they declared, may the lamb of heaven receive the rewards of, the suffering, of his suffering. Now, we go from Methodists. From the Methodists, you get the Salvation Army. I love the Salvation Army. That's the camp I went to when I first bought my $50 guitar. Ended up at a Salvation Army camp. And I was a worship leader two weeks in. Ha! <laughs> Suckers. I barely knew God. I wasn't stoked to be there at all. But I had a $50 guitar and I knew D and G not very well. So I had to start writing my own songs immediately because I didn't know what I was doing. And I didn't have enough chords to play anybody else's songs. And you're like, but I don't play very well. Uh, So you're using that as an excuse or are you just going to use it as a way of beginning to write your own stuff? Salvation Army Camp. Church of Christ. Okay, then we get the holiness movement. In the holiness movement, this spurs to a bunch of stuff you might recognize, but this is the, the Nazarene church. Ugh, the Nazarene church, Assemblies of God church. Now, Assemblies of God, that, that's, that streams like Bethel and stuff like that. Bethel Church in Reading was an Assemblies of God church. They're no longer an Assemblies of God church, but they were. So that's kind of the stream if you want to follow that down. Um, you also get your Foursquare church. Foursquare, which was Amy Semple McPherson. Do you know that the Foursquare Church at uh, Amy Semple McPherson's church, which was um, uh, Angelus Temple in downtown Los Angeles, that in downtown Los Angeles, when um, people were picked up by the ambulance, they'd stop by Angelus Temple before they'd take them to the hospital because the ambulance drivers recognized that more people were being healed at the church than they were at the hospital. Tons of famous people went to her church. She has a bunch of stuff that went wrong. Don't write off the bad stuff just to promote the good stuff, you guys. We have to learn from the mistakes of others so that we don't repeat their mistakes. Even if we want their testimony, we have to acknowledge their mistakes. If all you want to do is write off their mistakes and say, oh, it's okay. That's total arrogance. You're just trying to, you're going to end up repeating history, okay? Four-square church led to your, out of the four-square church, you got Calvary chapels. Okay? Calvary chapels, this is a great story. Everybody wants to repeat the Jesus people movement, but they don't know how it started. Do you know that Jesus people movement started with a homosexual man? His name was Lonnie Frisbee. Chuck Smith from Calvary Chapel, he decided, he said, he prayed to God one day, God, give me a hippie. Because there was all these hippies, total like, uh, you know, all the hippie stuff was going on. It's love, free love, all this stuff. And he said, God, I want to reach a hippie. Give me a hippie. Drives down the road, sees a hippie, thumbing Lonnie Frisbee. Picks him up, takes him to his house. Dude gets saved. Dude walks in so much power. It's ridiculous. If you read stories of Lonnie Frisbee, it is insane. People were known, like he would walk into a room and people would just fall out. People who don't believe in falling out would just fall out. The power, they said the power of God, I, I've heard some people that were around him, they said the power of God emanated off his body like six feet. Like he would walk around and you'd feel the tangible presence of God when you walked around him. Wow. He struggled with homosexuality his whole life when it finally came out that he was homosexual and that he was struggling and that he couldn't 
he could not just, he couldn't figure it out. He just went back and forth struggling and he didn't want to be. He was struggling, trying to figure it out. When that happened, the church rejected him. They wrote him out of the history of Calvary chapels and said, we do not let him preach and we do not believe in tongues and we don't use tongues in services anymore. And we have afterglow services for stuff like that, but we don't do any of it anymore. But there was one guy who decided I'm going to have Lonnie Frisbee come speak at my Calvary chapel. Still, that man was named John Wimber. John Wimber had Lonnie Frisbee come speak in his service. He comes to his service to speak. And all of a sudden people start falling out all over the room and praying in tongues. The microphone falls over and the the microphone rolls over to a man who's speaking in tongues. And there's now tongues in the service, which he was told not to have in his services. As, as John Wimber is running towards the front to grab the microphone so that there's no more tongues on the microphone. He, the Lord knocks him down in the middle of the aisle and says, don't you dare stop what I started. From that moment, you get the Vineyard Church. Lonnie Frisbee, by the way, dies alone because he was struggling. He could not get help. They rejected him. And the only man sitting at his bedside when he died of AIDS was John Wimber. We had the very fortunate blessing of meeting a whole heck of a lot of people from, uh, that were around Lonnie Frisbee and hearing some of the inside stories. And we were super blessed to be able to receive impartation from some of that stuff. But, uh, John, uh, but from vineyard movement, essentially you get Metro Christian fellowship, you get IHOP, you get some other stuff. And then in the middle of these worlds, you get the renewal movement. Renewal breaks out in Toronto, signs and wonders and tongues and prophecy and a bunch of weird stuff. People, I've heard the craziest stories from Toronto that you ever heard in your whole life. And you're offended before I even tell them. So it's okay. But a little lady named Heidi Baker um, works her butt off as a missionary. And she's literally dying. She's just literally falling apart. She's worked as a missionary for years. No fruit. No fruit. No fruit. She literally goes into just, I'm going to collapse. She just, um, I forget what the word is for that. Like, uh, what does she have? What's the, what? Yeah, she just burned out, breakdown. I don't know, whatever. She'll tell you. She just collapsed. And, um, she went to the hospital hospital was trying to get her full of fluids, get her to rest, all this stuff. She says, that's it. I'm out of here. I'm going to Toronto. She leaves without their permission in the middle of the night. She gets up into Toronto against doctor's orders. She ends up in Toronto. She ends up in Toronto and she falls out in the spirit for like, I don't even remember how long they literally wheel her around in a wheelchair because she's unable to move under the presence of God. She comes around to had a totally restored body, totally healed. She ends up (laughs) standing, whatever. Okay. So she ends up in the corner during worship on her head. The Lord tells her to get on her head. So she's now upside down against a wall in the corner during worship. And she says that any other church that she went to, that would sound crazy, but because she's in Toronto, it's normal. Then another, another dude comes up to her with a jug of water and says, Hey, can I anoint your feet with water? And she goes, she goes, okay. And he takes the entire jug of water and dumps it over her whole body. So now she says she's dripping wet upside down in the corner in the corner of a vineyard church in Toronto. And anywhere else that would seem weird, but here it seems kind of normal. And she says, what does this mean, God? What is this? In the midst of this, the Lord tells her, go get my Makua bride. She has no idea who the Makua are, but she finds out they're in Mozambique. So she goes to Mozambique. What she finds out is God turns the entire country upside down with a flood. And the only plane available in Mozambique is Heidi and Rollins. 
And so they fly around delivering food in the name of Jesus and preach the gospel all over Mozambique, being the only resource all over the country. She now planted 20,000 churches across Mozambique. Has a farm that's hundreds of acres and can be a resource to most of northern Mozambique and southern Mozambique. Oh, but it was really weird how it started. So let's just forget the weird stuff and talk about what she's doing as a missionary. No, let's talk about all the weird stuff that happened to get you there. Because God, God wants to speak, he might do it in a really weird way, and you better be open to it. <laughs> uh, and then we have, oh, there's so much. Then we have the Church of England. Don't worry, I'm getting to stuff. Then you have the Church of England, started by Henry the eighth, I am, I am. Then that turns into congregational churches and Quaker churches. Congregational and Quakers. We love the Quakers. It's kind of awesome. Then you have, don't worry, I didn't forget you. Baptists. All the Baptists in the house. I was at a Baptist church for years. Out of Baptists. Um, that's actually where I came from was a Baptist church. But out of that, you get first Baptist. No churches that say first Baptist is not because it was the first Baptist church in a city. There actually is a denomination called first Baptist. Okay. So first Baptist, and then you get Southern Baptist, all different associations. Now here's the point. All of this equals 40,000 denominations today. 40,000 plus, and we are scheduled to be at 60,000 denominations by 2020. We are the most divided church in all of human history. And Jesus, at the center of it all, says, if you are going to be my disciples, they're going to know it because you love one another. And I ask you guys, how in the world are we supposed to do that when there is 40,000 denominations on the planet right now, all divided? I'm going to tell you how we do it. We let that break our hearts. In this room alone, we have probably represented 10 or 15 of these denominations. Just if we were to start yelling out what denomination you're from, probably represent a whole lot of these. The point is simply this. You're in the same room today. Why? Because the evangelization of the world is going to take every denomination, every background, every theology, every doctrine. It's going to take every single one of us in the same place at the same time, laying down our guard and our, our rights and our precious little wrongs. We're going to lay them all down for the sake of knowing Jesus, worshiping together, praying together, and carrying the gospel to the ends of the earth. And I believe, this is what I believe, this is a prophetic word. I believe that denominationalism is going to end in one generation. Why? Because ideals and denominations can only be maintained when you have similar mindsets that want to maintain organizations above relationship. And we have a generation that's rising up right now that cares nothing for the organizations but really likes family. Yeah. Now, humanists, humanists, And some other very nice, friendly gospel church churches who shall remain nameless really want everybody to just be friends, but there is no gospel. That's different. 
When you take this message too far, you get humanism and it becomes selfish. And we gather together for the sake of gathering together, not for the sake of the gospel and not for the sake of worship and not for the sake of prayer and not for the sake of missions. We gather together because we really like hanging out and we're just doing it and it's okay. We're just hanging out. Isn't it great? This is so awesome. And we call it church and it's not. It's not church. It's just hanging out. What we really need is a bunch of people who actually want to do family, which is different than hanging out. Family says, I covenant myself to you for the sake of the gospel for the rest of my life. Like we're actually going to do this together. I don't care where, where we don't believe the same things. I don't care where we disagree. I know where we do agree. And his name is Jesus. And we're going to agree that we need to carry out the message of Jesus. If it costs us everything, even our own lives. Like I'm willing to die for this thing because the world that needs evangelizing right now is the places that are going to get you killed. The places that need the gospel are places that you cannot be passive and you have to be willing to put your life on the line. The crazy part is if we sent thousands of missionaries into the places where you die, <laughs> by the way, we are, you guys know all this stuff. We're the most persecuted church on the entire planet right now. Christianity is the most persecuted religion on the planet right now. Did you know that? Christianity is the most persecuted religion on earth, which means this. If you're really going to do the work, you're going to have to actually be willing to die. And if we're going to see this overcome, we're going to have to do it for the sake of his name and not for the sake of our agenda. Because this is what I believe and this is what I'm going to tell you is I think that there is enough churches on the planet. The church, the world doesn't need to plant more churches. We need more families. It's what impacted Zinzendorf and the Moravians more than anything else in, any, in all of these movements. The one that got impacted the most by family is the Moravians who said, we're going to fight for family, not for an agenda and not for the promotion of our church or denomination. What we're going to do is we're going to fight for family. Now, what you need to know is that most of these movements that were started were started after the leader died and the people who were following them started a, started a denomination in the name of the guy that died instead of just doing family well and continuing to promote the gospel. 40,000 denominations. And I've heard one guy, he said, well, I think God loves denominations. He loves, he loved tribes. No, tribes were families. God does love tribes. He loves families. There were 12 families that God chose and set apart each one of them for a specific work. If you know the work of your family, you can fulfill the work of the family. But at the end of the day, the will of God is not for you to work. It's for you to love God. And we have to learn how to fight for family above all else. More than our names, more than our platforms, more than our denominations, our churches, and our organizations. We have to learn to fight for family. And when the world sees that we're willing to fight and die for covenant, they'll want what we have because we know that they'll know that we're willing to fight and die for them as well. They'll get hungry for it, you guys. But it's going to cost you everything. Because look at what you're overcoming. A single line that went throughout all of history. We're going after this. We're going after the coming Messiah. We're going after Jesus. We want Jesus. Divides once. Divides twice. Divides to 40,000. I just want a body that's after him. You don't believe in, in signs and wonders? Cool. Can we just go get a hamburger at least? Can we at least go get Jesus together? Can we talk about our families? Can we talk about life? Well, no, I'd rather talk about our little disagreements. I don't care about our doctrinal degree disagreements. The apostles had doctrinal disagreements. They didn't divide over it, though. They stayed together. And when they broke apart for a season, they came back together. Right? Huh. Don't, you shouldn't go preach any of this stuff. It'll get you in trouble.
But there's a difference between a denomination and a spirit of denominationalism. A denomination is just an organized body with a set of doctrines and theologies that they're trying to protect. Denominationalism is a spirit that says, I'm going to separate from you whenever we disagree. And it's the same spirit that causes families to divorce. It's the same spirit that causes families to divide because they just don't agree anymore. I mean, literally, all this is is one big divorce over irreconcilable differences. I'm sorry, no difference is irreconcilable. We don't have to agree on the same thing. See, that's what the Jews got right. That's what the Jewish people got right. We're allowed to disagree and argue over it, but we're staying together. We stay together. And I encourage all of you, I don't care what denomination you came from. I didn't get to the, I want to get to, are we together tomorrow or am I back up there? What's happening? Does anybody know? Uh, sorry, y'all. you have to get that one. Because now I'm going to go, after that, I want to go into the kingdom and say, now look, if we do this well, here's how it affects the globe. Here's how it affects planet Earth. Because with all of this here, we have to know now, how do we get back to this? With all this here, we need to know how to get back here because that's where we're going over here. And that's how we learn to walk out and operate in kingdom, okay? So that gives you your church history for the day. You got your history lessons. We could have done a lot more, but at least, uh, isn't that weird that there's just so much information you can't get it all in in four hours? (sighs) All right. Let me pray this. God, anything that was not that was anything that was not of you, we ask that it fall to the ground right now and bear no fruit. That we ask that it would fall out of people's minds and it'd be accidentally erased from stuff that was being recorded. We ask that if it was not born of your spirit, that it was just my flesh and my opinion, that it'd be buried into the ground right now. Holy Spirit, we, we just know that the, not everything I said is correct or accurate. We just know we're trying to do the best with the information we have. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that anything that's not of you would absolutely be burned up in your presence right now. But anything that is of you, would it be a seed and would it go deep into the roots of the heart and the minds and the spirits of the people that are represented in this room. That it would be a seed, God, that goes in so deep that the enemy could not find it and that it would bear much fruit over lifetimes. That it wouldn't just bear much fruit in a moment or not just during a DTS or during a missions trip, but that, God, it would bear fruit generationally. That there would be a generational inheritance that's birthed from the things that were said that were of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.